Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com And Black Complicity. It's important not just for the Tuskegee study, but for other research. There's a lot of focus on blacks who supposedly have participated in abusive research. Sometimes they did, but their role has always been exaggerated. Look at the picture on the right. These are scientists affiliated with the Tuskegee study. What do you see there? You see two black scientists, right? Wrong. The man standing there had nothing to do with the study. I don't know why he was included in the photograph. The woman on the left is Eunice Rivers, a public health nurse, a black public health nurse, arguably at the bottom of the medical rung. No power, no agency, no autonomy. And yet, if you think of the study, who can tell me the name of someone affiliated with the study? One of the medical care providers. Besides Eunice Rivers? We don't know. You know, it's only Eunice Rivers. Only her name has survived. O.C. Wenger? Raymond Vandelier, Thomas Morell, Thomas Perrin, these are the men who devised and perpetrated, these are the architects of the study, but their names are not known, only Eunice Rivers. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, April 22nd, 2016. So I have been told this is our first study session on Harriet A. Washington's phenomenal book. I'm really eager, excited that we're having a chance to uh, do this selection, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. This was our number one vote getter uh, when folks selected the next book that we were supposed to do, but just confusion on my part and just not ha- not having access to the audiobook at the time uh, delayed us. Uh, but I think we did some great reading in between everyone. Once again, your patience uh, has been rewarded. I hope we'll have great participation and hopefully we will learn a lot. Uh, that was Harriet Washington at the beginning with that audio clip. Just I think that's always important. I know a lot of times we get frustrated with the black people and we're always looking for Negro complicity. Not everybody, but a lot of us uh, focused on and frustrated with other black people and how we respond to and end up supporting in various ways, knowingly, unknowingly, the system of white supremacy. I thought she made just some 
brilliant observations, uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, many, many more such outstanding observation and insight as we get into her text. Uh, without further delay, Harriet A. Washington, Medical Apartheid, audio segment number one. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present, by Harriet A. Washington. Narrated by Ron Butler When I began working at the Institute, I recalled my adolescent dream of becoming a medical research worker. Daily I saw young, white boys and girls receiving instruction in chemistry and medicine that the average black boy or girl could never receive. When I was alone, I wandered and poked my fingers into strange chemicals, watched intricate machines trace red and black lines upon ruled paper. At times, I paused and stared at the walls of the rooms, at the floors, at the wide desks at which the white doctor sat. And I realized, with a feeling that I could never quite get used to, that I was looking at the world of another race. Richard Wright, 1944 The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, and so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. Chief U.S. Prosecutor Robert Jackson, Opening Statement, Nuremberg Doctors' Trial, December 9, 1946. Introduction The American Janus of Medicine and Race Science without conscience is the soul's perdition. Francois Rabelais, Pantagruel on a sylvan stretch of New York's patrician Upper Fifth Avenue, just across from the New York Academy of Medicine, a colossus in marble, august inscriptions, and a bas-relief caduceus, grace a memorial bordering Central Park. These laurels venerate the surgeon James Marion Sims, M.D., as a selfless benefactor of women. Nor is this the only statue erected in honor of Dr. Sims. Marble monuments to his skill, benevolence, and humanity guard his native South Carolina State House, its medical school, the Alabama Capitol grounds, and a French hospital. In the mid-19th century, Dr. Sims dedicated his career to the care and cure of women's disorders and opened the nation's first hospital for women in New York City. He attended French royalty. His Greasen visage inspired oil portraits, and in 1875, he was elected president of the American Medical Association. Hospitals still bear his name, including a West African hospital that utilizes the eponymous gynecological instruments that he first invented for surgeries upon black female slaves in the 1840s. But this benevolent image vies with the detached Marion Sims portrayed in Robert Tom's J. Marion Sims gynecologic surgeon, an oil representation of an experimental surgery upon his powerless slave, Betsy. Sims stands aloof, arms folded, one hand holding a metroscope, the forerunner of the speculum, as he regards the kneeling woman in a coolly evaluative medical gaze. His tie and morning coat contrast with her simple servant's dress, head rag and bare feet. The painting, 
commissioned and distributed by the Park Davis Pharmaceutical House more than a century after the surgeries as one of its A History of Medicine in Pictures series, takes telling liberties with the historical facts. Tom portrays Betsy as a fully clothed, calm slave woman who kneels complacently on a small table, hand modestly raised to her breast, before a trio of white male physicians. Two other slave women peer around a sheet, apparently hung for modesty's sake, in a childlike display of curiosity. This innocuous tableau could hardly differ more from the gruesome reality in which each surgical scene was a violent struggle between the slaves and physicians, and each woman's body was a bloodied battleground. Each naked, unanesthetized slave woman had to be forcibly restrained by the other physicians through her shrieks of agony as Sims determinedly sliced, then sutured her genitalia. The other doctors, who could, fled when they could bear the horrific scenes no longer. It then fell to the women to restrain one another. I wanted to reproduce Tom's painting on the cover of this book, or at least in the text, but when I asked permission of its copyright holder, Pfizer, Inc., the company insisted on reviewing the entire manuscript of this book before making a decision. As an independent scholar, I could not acquiesce to this, and I used another cover image. When I renewed my request to use the image within the text, Pfizer agreed to base its decision upon reading this chapter and an outline of the book. The Pfizer executives apparently were uncomfortable with what they read, because they refused to grant permission to reproduce this telling image or even respond to my query after I supplied the requested chapter and outline. This act of censorship exemplifies the barriers some choose to erect in order to veil the history of unconscionable medical research with blacks. Betsy's voice has been silenced by history. But as one reads Sims's biographers and his own memoirs, a haughty, self-absorbed researcher emerges, a man who bought black women slaves and addicted them to morphine in order to perform dozens of exquisitely painful, distressingly intimate vaginal surgeries. Not until he had experimented with his surgeries on Betsy and her fellow slaves for years did Sims essay to cure white women. Was Sims a savior or a sadist? It depends, I suppose, on the color of the women you ask. Marion Sims epitomizes the two faces, one benign, one malevolent, of American medical research. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke these words in Montgomery, Alabama, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march that had been attended by the black and white physicians of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. King had invited the doctors not only to give medical succor to injured marchers, but also to witness the abuse suffered at the hands of segregationists. With these almost unnoticed words, King ushered in a new era in civil rights, because as Delegate to Congress Donna Christian Christensen, M.D., Chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, has declared, Health disparities are the civil rights issue of the 21st century. 
Thus, Dr. King's alarm over racial health injustice was prescient. And were he alive today, his concern would be redoubled. Mounting evidence of the racial health divide confronts us everywhere we look, from doubled black infant death rates to African-American life expectancies that fall years behind whites. Infant mortality of African-Americans is twice that of whites, and black babies born in more racially segregated cities have higher rates of mortality. The life expectancy of African-Americans is as much as six years less than that of whites. Old measures of health not only have failed to improve significantly, but have stayed the same. Some have even worsened. Mainstream newspapers and magazines often report disease in an ethnocentric manner that shrouds its true cost among African Americans. For example, despite the heavy emphasis on genetic ailments among blacks, fewer than 0.5% of black deaths, that's less than one death in 200, can be attributed to hereditary disorders such as sickle cell anemia. A closer look at the troubling numbers reveals that blacks are dying not of exotic, incurable, poorly understood illnesses, nor of genetic diseases that target only them, but rather from common ailments that are more often prevented and treated among whites than among blacks. Three times as many African Americans were diagnosed with diabetes in 1993 as in 1963. This rate is nearly twice that of white Americans and is sorely underestimated. The real black diabetes rate is probably double that of whites. As with most chronic diseases, African Americans suffer more complications, including limb loss, blindness, kidney disease, and terminal heart disease. Cancer, the nation's second greatest killer, is diagnosed later in blacks and carries off proportionately more African Americans than whites. African Americans suffer the nation's highest rate of cancer and cancer deaths. The distortion of African American death rates is illustrated by the common dismissal of black women's breast cancer risks as lower than white women's. This characterization implies that black women are at low risk from breast cancer, but their risk is only slightly lower, because the estimated lifetime risk of developing breast cancer is 10 per 100 for white women born in 1980 and 7 per 100 for black women born that year. Moreover, this lower risk of developing breast cancer is overshadowed by blacks' much higher risk of dying from it. 86% of white women with breast cancer are alive five years later. Only 71% of black women survive that long. A black woman is 2.2 times as likely as a white woman to die of breast cancer. Black women have been undergoing mammograms at the same rate as white women, but are more likely to receive poor quality screening, which may not detect a cancer in time for a cure. A black woman is also more likely to develop her cancer before age 40, too early for recommended mammograms to catch it. And black women are diagnosed at a more advanced stage than either Hispanic or white breast cancer patients. Black breast cancer patients have a worse overall prognosis, and a worse prognosis at each stage. Black men have the nation's highest rates of developing and of dying from prostate and lung cancers. 
Despite its image as a disease that affects middle-aged white men, heart disease claims 50% more African Americans than whites, and African Americans die from heart attacks at a higher rate than whites. African Americans are more likely to develop serious liver ailments, such as hepatitis C, the chief cause of liver transplants. They are also more likely to die from liver disease, not because of any inherent racial susceptibility, but because blacks are less likely to receive aggressive treatment with drugs such as interferon or life-saving liver transplants. Even the legion of newest illnesses, emerging diseases such as HIV-AIDS and hepatitis C, kills blacks at much higher rates than whites. AIDS, the scourge of our time, has become a disease of people of color here and abroad. 49% of HIV-infected Americans are African Americans, and 86% of children with AIDS are African American or Hispanic. Blacks are 10 times as likely to develop AIDS as whites. Mental ailments are destroying blacks as well. Black women suffer the highest rates of stress and major depression in the nation, and suicide rates soared 200% among young black men within just 20 years. These are dire statistics, born of complex interactions among unhealthy environments, social pressures and limitations, lifestyle factors, and limited access to health care, including very limited access to cutting-edge therapeutic medical research that is meant to help treat or cure a patient with a disorder. But this dearth of therapeutic research is accompanied by a plethora of non-therapeutic research with African Americans, which is meant to investigate medical issues for the benefit of future patients or of medical knowledge. And this brings us to the subject of this book, which documents a peculiar type of injustice in health. The Troubled History of Medical Experimentation with African Americans and the resulting behavioral fallout that causes researchers and African Americans to view each other through jaundiced eyes. In his 1909 preface to The Doctor's Dilemma, George Bernard Shaw scathingly observed, The tragedy of illness at present is that it delivers you helplessly into the hands of a profession which you deeply mistrust. He could have been speaking for contemporary African Americans, because studies and surveys repeatedly confirm that no other group as deeply mistrusts the American medical system, especially medical research. The problem is growing. As the Wall Street Journal observed several years back, it hasn't been a good time for scientists who experiment on people, or the people they experiment on. This is a masterpiece of understatement especially if you consider the recent history of medical research with African Americans. The Office for Protection from Research Risks, OPRR, has been busily investigating abuses at more than 60 research centers, including experimentation-related deaths at premier universities, from Columbia to California. Another important subset of human subject abuse has been scientific fraud, wherein scientists from the University of South Carolina to MIT have also been found to have lied through falsified data or fictitious research agendas, often in the service of research that abused black Americans. Within recent years, 
the OPRR has also suspended research at such revered universities as Alabama, Pennsylvania, Duke, Yale, and even Johns Hopkins. Many studies enrolled only or principally African Americans, although some included a smattering of Hispanics. Some research studies specifically excluded white subjects according to the terms of their official protocols, the federally required plans that detail how research studies are conducted. However, in other human medical experiments, the recruitment of blacks and the poor is a tacit feature of the study because they recruit subjects from heavily black inner-city areas that tend to surround American teaching hospitals. American university research centers have historically been located in inner-city areas, and accordingly, a disproportionate number of these abuses have involved experiments with African Americans. These subjects were given experimental vaccines, known to have unacceptably high lethality, were enrolled in experiments without their consent or knowledge, were subjected to surreptitious surgical and medical procedures while unconscious, injected with toxic substances, deliberately monitored rather than treated for deadly ailments, excluded from life-saving treatments, or secretly farmed for sera or tissues that were used to perfect technologies such as infectious disease tests. A few African-American medical institutions have suffered their own run-ins with federal oversight agencies, concerned about how they treated their own research subjects. But the considerable concern raised by governmental oversight agencies has been dwarfed by the periodic hue and cry raised in the popular press. The news media seize upon and decry new experimental abuses with regularity. Moreover, it is newspapers, not research oversight organizations, that have been instrumental in unveiling and ending egregious abuses. From the Tuskegee syphilis study in the 1970s, to the 1996 jailing of poor black mothers who were unwitting research subjects in South Carolina, to the 1998 infusion of poor black New York City boys with the cardiotoxic drug fenfluramine. However, newspapers and magazines have given such abuses episodic rather than analytic treatment, expending their outrage, then falling silent until the next wave of research deaths missing consent forms, or unwitting subjects, steals headlines. Subjects are often identified not as black, but using coded references as the urban poor, socioeconomically disadvantaged, or inner-city residents. This episodic approach treats the exploitation of black experimental subjects as isolated events, so that even while the repeated reports buttress widespread distrust of medical research, these stories fail to discern the stubborn and illuminating patterns characterizing the medical abuse of African Americans. In fact, the news media often fail to perceive unethical experimentation, even as they write about it. Scientists promulgate novel drugs and technologies, such as norplant use among adolescents and psychosurgery for rioters, as new therapies that are necessarily extreme remedies. But despite the treatment's untried nature and the vulnerability of their subjects, the news media often swallow such euphemistic labels as breakthrough and new therapy whole. 
Research is an utterly essential and desirable component of treatment, but its subjects must be aware that they are participating, must be informed, must consent, and must be allowed to weigh the possible risks and benefits. As this book will show, these conditions are only haphazardly met, or not at all, when the subjects are African Americans. A Historical Vacuum The experimental exploitation of African Americans is not an issue of the last decade, or even the past few decades. Dangerous, involuntary, and non-therapeutic experimentation upon African Americans has been practiced widely and documented extensively at least since the 18th century. Attempts to understand the distrust this history generates are confused and distorted because few know its facts beyond a few oft-cited experimental outrages, notably the Tuskegee syphilis study. History of medicine courses, medical museums, and even much medical scholarship leave one unaware of the long, tragic history of medical research with African Americans. There are fine books that address more general issues in the history of African Americans in medicine. These include The History of the Negro in Medicine by Herbert M. Marais, Making a Place for Ourselves by Vanessa Northington Gamble, M.D., and The Sweepingly Ambitious An American Health Dilemma by Drs. Linda Clayton and Michael Byrd. Other works deal with discrete instances of African-American experimental exploitation, such as James Jones's Bad Blood and Susan M. Reverby's Tuskegee's Truths. The Plutonium Files, by Eileen Wellsom, meticulously details government radiation experiments in a gripping expose. Bones in the Basement, by Robert Blakely and Judith Harrington, documents the archaeological evidence that revealed how the Medical College of Georgia used stolen African-American bodies for physician training. Alan Hornblum's Acres of Skin chronicles experimentation in Philadelphia's Holmesburg prison complex. And The Treatment by Martha Stevens does the same with Cincinnati's radiation experiments. Most of the abuses detailed in these books targeted African-Americans. Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts includes research in its examination of the reproductive constraints on African-American women in a historical context. And Sharla M. Fett's Working Cures and Todd L. Savitt's Medicine and Slavery are seminal histories of antebellum medicine that discuss research issues, but not exclusively. A few scholars have devoted books to research with blacks abroad, such as Clarence Lusane's Fine, Hitler's Black Victims, Wolfgang U. Eckhart's Medicine und Colonial Imperialismus on Medical Colonialism in Germany's African Holdings, and Jan Bartgewalt's Herero Heroes on the German Medical Abuse of Namibia's Herero People. But none of the works listed above attempts anything like a comprehensive history of the racial research wars. There have been no inclusive treatments of African-American medical research, and only a few books on discrete aspects of that history, focusing on research in a single prison, a single archaeological discovery of African-American bones in a medical school basement, a single experiment with syphilitic men, or a single radiation experiment.
Why? History is written by the victors, warned Churchill, and a Nigerian proverb issues a similar caveat. Don't let the lion tell the giraffe story. The history of medicine has been written by medical professionals, and so reflects their points of view. The experimental suffering of black Americans has taken many forms. Fear, profound deception, psychological trauma, pain, injection with deadly agents, disfigurement, crippling, chronic illness, undignified display, intractable pain, stolen fertility, and death. None reflect well upon their medical practitioners. So this experimental abuse often has been downplayed or misrepresented as therapy in the medical and popular literature. This book reveals these tendencies, as well as the lack of objectivity and sensitivity with which African Americans' fears are often greeted, and the social and cultural reasons for the lack of common ground. The slave appropriated by physicians for experimental surgeries, the impoverished clinic patient operated upon to devise or demonstrate a surgical technique, the sharecropper whose body is spirited from the morgue for dissection, the young girl whose fertility is stolen via an untested contraceptive technique or a Mississippi appendectomy, involuntary sterilization, the soldiers, prisoners, and children who find themselves without options when government physicians foist novel medications and techniques upon those with little legal protection. All these African Americans, and many more, have found themselves voiceless, as medical lions have chosen to present this research in a bowdlerized manner. The oral histories of medical abuse voiced by African Americans are often dismissed as mythological, but without objective proof of this label. African Americans' personal stories and familial histories of abuse have rarely surfaced in the medical literature or in the popular literature. This is not surprising, because African Americans were not well represented in these canons until fairly recently. Why should we give the physicians' medical narratives more credence than the numerous contentions of slaves, sharecroppers, and contemporary African Americans that they have been subjected to abusive medical research. Until now, the discussion has suffered greatly from our Western literary bias, which encourages us to believe planters' and physicians' writings about the health and medical issues of African Americans, but to give insufficient weight to a rich oral history passed down by African Americans, a history that has preserved the memory of medical abuses, we quite logically cede medical authority to medical experts. But this book will illustrate how race, culture, and economics have trumped medical and scientific truths at every turn. It will make the case that physicians had every motive to skew narratives against their black subjects, not because they were especially racist or unfair, although many were, but because the culture of American medicine has mirrored the larger culture that encompassed enslavement, segregation, and less dramatic forms of racial inequity. The bias against African-American medical narratives emanates from culture and politics, including the Western literary bias against oral history. Because slaves were forbidden to read, 
and segregated educational institutions perpetrated illiteracy and undereducation. Black Americans' contributions to historical understanding of their role in American medicine were dwarfed or silenced. Finally, physicians' accounts carefully inculcated beliefs about black fearfulness, credulousness, emotional instability, and a tendency toward falsehoods that helped to discount claims of abuse. The resulting lacunae in American medical history feed erroneous assumptions about blacks' medical wariness. An almost innate resistance to all medical research is ascribed to all African Americans. Often, the fear of becoming an abused, unwitting subject is laid to one single instance of abuse, the Tuskegee syphilis study, rather than to a centuries-long history of such abuse. Fortunately, the facts recorded by researchers and scientists themselves in medical journals, texts, speeches, and memoirs buttress African-American claims for several reasons. Until three or four decades ago, these researchers were speaking only to their like-minded peers, other whites, usually male and rarely of the lower classes. They could afford to be frank. Blacks were barred from many medical schools and training programs, and newspaper and magazine reporters rarely read the medical publications perused by specially trained medical men of means. There was very little danger any blacks would read medical accounts, because in the antebellum period, black literacy was banned by law, and illiteracy persisted long beyond slavery. Therefore, a doctor could be open about buying slaves for experiments or locating or moving hospitals to areas where blacks furnished bodies for experimentation and dissection. Public health service physician Thomas Morrell could brashly insist in the 1940s, the future of the Negro lies more in the research laboratory than in the schools. When diseased, he should be registered and forced to take treatment before he offers his diseased mind and body on the altar of academic and professional education. Even more recently, the segregated nature of U.S. medical training emboldened some physicians to speak with candor of misusing black subjects. It was cheaper to use niggers than cats because they were everywhere and cheap experimental animals, neurosurgeon Harry Bailey, M.D., reminisced in a 1960 speech he delivered while at Tulane Medical School. But as societal attitudes changed, so did physician reticence, and most became more circumspect. However, as late as 1995, radiation scientist Clarence Lushbaugh, M.D., explained that he and his partner, Eugene Sanger, M.D., chose slum patients as radiation subjects because these persons don't have any money, and they're black, and they're poorly washed. This book will document numerous instances of such shocking frankness on the part of white researchers and physicians when they thought that nobody outside of their peer group was listening. In the course of explaining what constitutes exploitative experimentation, medical apartheid will explain the meaning and nature of informed consent and the differences between therapeutic and non-therapeutic research. It traces the delicate balance between experimental risk and benefit because symbiosis, not complete freedom from harm, is the therapeutic goal. 
a goal that often eludes African Americans. The individual chapters also supply general background on how experimental practices evolved over the periods covered in this book, and how laws and institutional review boards now protect volunteers, albeit still imperfectly. Finding the Truth in Plain Sight It is medical researchers themselves who have documented the proof of this long, unhappy history of African Americans as research subjects. Even so, this history has been a challenge to document because it has been hidden in plain sight, widely scattered, distorted, and rendered all but unrecognizable as abuse by heavy editorializing. As I recall the years I have spent ferreting out these experiments bit by bit, examining their patterns, and probing the mindsets that they revealed, I am put in mind of the legal discovery process. A favored ploy is to provide the opposing side with all the information it seeks, buried in towering mountains of unrelated or tangentially related documents. Similarly, I have perused dusty antebellum medical journals, the Surgeon's General's Index, its successor, the Medline Database, physicians' memoirs and literary efforts, slave narratives, and painfully picked my way through foreign publications in alien tongues that are sometimes more forthcoming than domestic publications about the history of our medical treatment of minority groups. Mining the bright but thin loads within these resources, I gradually amassed a cache of evidence. As previously hidden experimental exploits come to light, some have challenged the characterization of such research as secret, noting that the reports were published in medical and scientific journals that could be read by anyone. But these critics would do well to weigh Marcel Pagnol's definition of secrecy. A secret is not something unrevealed, but told privately in a whisper. Until the past few decades, descriptions in medical publications of experimentation with African Americans were shielded from the eyes of the uninitiated. Generalized professional journals, such as the Journal of the American Medical Association and the New England Journal of Medicine, are not available in bookstores or on newsstands. Specialized medical journals are even less accessible, and access was even more restricted in past decades. The medical libraries that house these journals have historically been closed to the public, and most remain so. Indeed, I have been challenged while entering such libraries while a student or instructor at various northern universities. Moreover, physical access to such journals would constitute only the first hurdle. The medical jargon in which such research papers are couched is often impenetrable, even to well-educated non-medical people. But some of the people central to medical research have been more generous with their knowledge. Scores of researchers physicians, and research subjects have shared their time and expertise and added depth to my understanding of the cultural divergence that has fed this history. Often, they told me more than they realized. For example, a duality has persisted, as I have learned from them more than the facts of scientifically questionable and ethically troubled medical research. Whether we were discussing the etiology of tuberculosis gynecological surgery, or the implication of census health statistics, 
These sources have conveyed to me Rorschach-like, divergent medical worldviews, the overarching presence of two Americas, one healthy and white, and the other filled with sick, disaffected people of color, has haunted our discussions. Scientists who abuse, exploit, and lie to research subjects get more than their share of ink. But I have spent enough time among physician scientists to believe that most American researchers, white and black, are idealistic and skilled. However, when it comes to the abuse of African Americans, a different set of ethical standards has long prevailed, and abusive researchers have historically been closer to the norm than we would like to think. Conventional wisdom pins experimental abuses on the Dr. Frankenstein stereotype, a scientific outcast of dubious pedigree who harbors blatant social or mental maladjustment. But historically, most perpetrators of ethically troubling experiments utilizing African Americans have been overachieving adepts with sterling reputations, impressive credentials, and social skills sufficient to secure positions of great responsibility. The stereotype of the abusive researcher as a coolly amoral renegade is a stock figure borrowed by journalism from science fiction. Like all stereotypes, it is one-dimensional and therefore false. Professionally and socially, these rogue stars have much more in common with the top strata of other successful American researchers than they do with mythical madmen. In fact, researchers who exploit African Americans were the norm for much of our nation's history, when black patients were commonly regarded as fit subjects for non-consensual, non-therapeutic research. This book explores the many reasons that blacks are so vulnerable, but ultimately it is because American medical researchers remain a racially homogenous group, and I show how the racial homogeneity of American medical researchers lies at the very heart of the problem. The Curious World of Medical Research Ironically, my interest in medical research using African Americans is the direct outgrowth of my long-standing fascination with the more noble history of medicine. In fact, when asked to describe my work, I usually explain that I am a medical voyeur. I am an admirer of medicine, and when not working alongside physicians in hospitals, I have spent decades profiling, describing, and analyzing medical advances and the remarkable people who make them. In my many magazine and newspaper articles, and in books that celebrate modern medical innovation, I have tried to convey the achievement, mission, and wonder of healers. My greatest challenge has usually been to avoid descending into frank hagiography. This admiration began at age eight, when Albert Schweitzer's Out of My Life and Thought became my favorite book. But it crystallized when I was an undergraduate at the University of Rochester. My favorite floor of the undergraduate library housed physicians' memoirs of a medical swashbuckler genre that included such titles as My Patients Were Zulus and Burma Doctor. These heroic reminiscences of lands populated by Africans and Asians mingled adventure with medical proselytizing and constituted a guilty pleasure for me 
as I pored over them when I should have been reading the assigned Chaucer or genetics. These readings also constituted a guilty pleasure because, although I originally read them as accounts of selfless physicians who cared for people of color, I soon realized that these accounts reeked of xenophobia. Most were deeply disdainful of the natives on whom physicians bestowed the blessings of Western medicine and Western civilization. Because these exploits were distant in time, as well as geography, I was less critical than I should have been when they sneered at the ignorant customs of superstitious natives. It all happened so long ago, I thought. Surely those colonial attitudes were dead now. I even made excuses for doctors whose disdainful observations were sprinkled with ethnic slurs, or when they congratulated themselves for conducting dramatic, not always benign, experiments upon the unwitting. I excused them on the basis that all this had taken place in the unenlightened past. How could we judge them for abuses conducted under the aegis of yesterday's morals? As the years passed, this became a progressively unsatisfying rationalization, and I eventually abandoned my medical adventures. Some years later, I opened a drawer and lost the remains of my innocence. I was running a modest poison control center in a teaching hospital in upstate New York, and we poor toxicologic relations had expanded into a space that had been reluctantly yielded us by radiology, a real medical department. When I opened a recalcitrant drawer of a file cabinet that had been left behind, a few forgotten medical folders from the 1970s littered its bottom. One contained the file of an older gentleman in imminent kidney failure and focused upon documenting the reams of tests and assessments entailed in finding him a matching kidney for transplant. The social history stressed his loving family and determination to live. Another file also described the plight of an older man in kidney failure, but it looked different, thinner. The first page I read documented his odyssey into sickness as his kidneys failed. It noted, among other things, that he was retired, insured, and negro. Nearly every page recorded his race, and someone had underlined it on his social profile just above the line that indicated that the medical staff's plans for him were not to secure a transplant, but to help him to prepare for his imminent demise. It was signed by a kind, erudite physician I knew and admired, and who had actively encouraged my interest in medicine. I could not reconcile this signature with the man I knew, a sensitive scholar and devout Christian. Probably, I thought, I was jumping to conclusions, and the patient's race had nothing to do with his failure to be considered for a life-saving organ. When I haltingly voiced my fears to an African-American acquaintance who had worked as a ward clerk in the nephrology unit, she looked at me as if I were not too bright and minced no words. Girl, black people don't get organs. They give organs. During our ensuing debate, she pointed out to me that the race bias in the hospital where we worked should have resolved any doubts. In the early 1980s, most of its black employees worked in housekeeping and clerical support. Blacks were noticeably scarce among the administrative and medical staffs. Why, she asked, 
Was I naive enough to believe racial bias stopped at the staffing roster? This was hardly proof, but my discomfort grew as she categorized instance after instance of overt bias and finally declared, I would never have a procedure done here. I've seen too much. To them, if you're black and poor, you're nothing but a guinea pig. I realized that my discomfort with her words went beyond the truth or falsity of her allegations. The mere fact that she believed them was unsettling, because she had worked in a hospital setting, was presumably better informed than most. Yet she did not trust the medical system and seemed less likely to turn to it when ill. The perception of evil in such cases, I realized, can prove as damaging as malfeasance itself. I finally glimpsed that understanding the true extent of unethical medical research with African Americans was more than idle curiosity or an academic exercise. It was key to removing barriers between African Americans and the bounty of the American healthcare system. In the hospital's medical library, I discovered a new genre of physician confessional literature, one that described black patients not in Africa, but here in the United States. Unlike the African book-length exploits, these often consisted of a revealing passage or two in an autobiography, a few pages in a memoir, or a hoary article in a 19th-century medical journal. I recognized in these Western accounts of black American patients the very same stereotypes belabored in African accounts. References in American physicians' memoirs and journal articles were studded with telling vignettes and observations of their black patients. The stories physicians told mixed stereotyped comedy with exasperation as they dismissed blacks as disease-ridden, unintelligent, fearful, distrustful, and above all, non-compliant patients. By non-compliant, doctors meant patients who could not be trusted to follow medical advice or even to act intelligently in their own best medical interests. I realized that such negative presumptions hampered physicians' ability to care for black patients or even to see them as worthy of the same excellent care rendered to others. For their part, the black patients I met and interviewed shared their own medical lore, which warned against trusting Western medical practices and physicians, a matrix they characterized as racist, rapacious, and eager to exploit black bodies for medical gain at the cost of health. Thus, the disparate narratives African Americans and physicians tell unveil a state of undeclared war, or, at best, an uneasy truce between physicians and their black patients. But I knew that analyzing the history of African Americans as research subjects would necessitate more than a familiarity with history and contemporary medical literature. A sound understanding of basic medical sciences and medical cultures, regulations, protocols, research design, and procedures would also be necessary. This would require a research plan enabling me to ferret out studies in a wide variety of disciplines and subjects. Finally, I would have to speak to medical researchers, subjects, and patients about sensitive experiences. 
at that time, around 1980. Data on racial health disparities was sparse and anecdotal. And in any event, I felt unqualified to take on such a daunting task. I had some grounding in the basic medical sciences, but having abandoned my pre-medical studies, my knowledge was incomplete. However, I occupied a good vantage point from which to observe and accrue an understanding of medical research culture. I had worked in hospitals for a decade, in positions ranging from ward clerk to laboratory technician to department manager, and in venues ranging from the animal laboratory to the cancer research laboratories to the psychiatric emergency department to the poison control center. The physicians for whom I worked openly discussed their work with me and were more forthcoming with me as a lowly clerk or technician than they would have been with a journalist. I eventually left the hospital to work as an inner-city medical social worker, ensconced in settings where I constantly talked to African-American clients and their caregivers about their beliefs and behaviors concerning medical care and research. I then worked as a journalist, most notably as a news editor and science editor at daily metropolitan newspapers for seven years, including a brief stint at USA Today. After that, I worked as a medical journalist, a columnist, and a contributing editor for several national magazines. My work was published by the New York Times Syndicate and appeared in popular publications as diverse as Health, USA Today, Essence, and Psychology Today. I was also published in academic publications such as the Harvard Public Health Review, Nature, and the American Journal of Public Health, and I edited the Harvard Journal of Minority Public Health, an especially valuable experience. A monthly medical column that I wrote for Emerge magazine gave me experience in framing the issues this book explores for a general audience, and it opened a conduit for numerous first-person testimonies as well. On a parallel track, I obtained a firm scientific background by completing a pre-medical course and medical school courses in immunology, toxicology, and neuroscience. As I took classes with medical and doctoral students and postdocs, they became my best sources by relating contemporary research they had participated in. Often they confessed to being troubled by ethical concerns, and this validated my anxiety about some disquieting trends in the commercialization of medical care and in what I increasingly perceived as an erosion of informed consent to research. Academic institutions, including Stanford, Maryland, and the Medical University of Lübeck, invited me to share with their scholars what I was learning about the hidden history of experimentation with African Americans. At the same time, I embarked upon a Harvard Medical School Fellowship in Medical Ethics, we addressed thorny issues in the philosophy and policy of medical research and engaged in a wealth of reading seminars with important experts. But it is my own assessment of these studies, informed by my medical ethics training, that form the basis of the ethical analyses in this work. They stand or fall on my own logic and historical knowledge. The Scope and Structure of Medical Apartheid I was determined that medical apartheid not be a simplistic, 
black hats, white hats story in which African-Americans are passive victims and researchers are always villains. Instead, the book takes a frank but more nuanced look at the calculus of racism's effects on experimental practice. I have attempted to write a social history that traces the key role that various researchers have played in both promulgating and refuting racism in medicine. It was impossible and undesirable to incorporate every instance of racialized experimental abuse that I unearthed. This would have resulted in a long, dreary checklist of horrors and little useful insight. The bulk of questionable experimentation upon African Americans is not detailed here because much of it consists of aberrations and therapeutics that were ostensibly meant to cure. Attempts to heal that transgress against ethical rules by dramatically escalating dosages and techniques, or that involve non-material breaches of consent, are still wrong and risky, but they concern me less because they are sometimes products of honest error and because the intent is still to heal or help. This book focuses more heavily upon experiments with mammoth risks, little or no therapeutic content, or no possible benefit to the subjects, and upon mere attempts at exploitation to perfect medications, procedures, and techniques. Therefore, this book is not a complete chronology of abusive racial research. Rather, it is a thematically organized collection of historical and contemporary issues in medical research with African Americans, illustrated by important cases. I also broach a discussion of such previously ignored historical themes as the fact that fraud is often a traveling partner of racially abusive research. I also explore the history of using African Americans in experimentation intended to support unflattering racial stereotypes and beliefs. African Americans have been used, for example, to perfect the IQ tests that would prove them inferior in intelligence, to devise the treponemal tests that would prove them ridden with a distinctive strain of syphilis, and to perform the painful skin and visceral dissection that would prove that blackness, or negritude, is a permanent mark of biological inferiority that exists independent of skin color. Some other important medical issues have been excluded from this work because they spill outside the strictest thematic boundaries of African Americans in medical research. Despite the long and rich history of medical abuse in African and other Third World countries, much of it conducted by U.S. researchers, there is no chapter detailing such research in this book. In one sense, this is akin to discussing Jewish issues without discussing Israel. But the sweeping history of such research is far too extensive to address in a single chapter, especially because it is burgeoning rather than abating. Similarly, it is impossible to capture completely the important work of African-American medical researchers in a single chapter, and I have reluctantly deferred a discussion of this neglected subject both for space reasons and because black researchers have tended to engage in therapeutic research rather than in the troubled investigations that are the subject of this work. Medical Apartheid consists of 15 chapters organized into three parts. Part 1, A Troubling Tradition, 
takes a chronological approach to the role of African Americans in early American medicine. It stresses the experimental abuse and exploitation of African Americans from the first encounters in the New World through the post-Civil War era, and then up until the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, which began in 1932. Part 2, The Usual Subjects, covers the period from the early 20th century to the present day in a roughly chronological manner. However, it departs from strict chronology in favor of an analysis of specific types of vulnerable subjects, children, soldiers, and hospital patients, used in research conducted by institutions ranging from the federal government to private corporations. Part 3. Race, Technology, and Medicine examines contemporary research issues, including genetic research, investigations into emerging diseases, and bioterrorism. In the epilogue, Medical Research with Blacks Today, I discuss how the worst abuses have been replaced by more subtle threats to the rights of the individual to choose whether and when to participate in medical research. Why Research Issues Still Matter Why do centuries of mutual distrust over medical research matter today? What does the sad history of exploitative experimentation augur for black health? What the French see in wine, Americans see in healthcare, mused Robert J. Blendon, Ph.D., professor of health policy and political analysis at the Harvard School of Public Health. Americans consider access to excellent health, and even the most expensive means of maintaining it, their birthright. Americans enjoy ever-burgeoning longevity, extravagant nutrition, and everyday access to superb medical care, including expensive high-technology interventions. From CAT scans on demand to new hips to keep us on the tennis courts and new hearts to keep us in the game, we demand the best care, including novel and experimental therapies. Our devotion to the very latest inexpensive remedies for increasingly marginal medical gains has many Americans bumping up against the law of diminishing returns. At the same time, medical experts of every persuasion agree that African Americans share the most deplorable health profile in the nation by far, one that resembles that of third-world countries. When Dr. Harold Friedman observed that the health status of Harlem men resembles that of Bangladeshis more closely than that of their Manhattan neighbors, he did not exaggerate. Twice as many African-American babies as babies of other ethnic groups die before their first birthday. One and a half times as many African-American adults as white adults die every year. Blacks have dramatically higher rates of nearly every cancer, of AIDS, of heart disease, of diabetes, of liver disease, of infectious diseases, and they even suffer from higher rates of accidental death, homicide, and mental illness. Before they die young in droves from eminently preventable diseases, African Americans also suffer far more devastating but equally preventable disease complications, such as blindness, confinement to wheelchairs, and limb loss. Studies continue to demonstrate that Far from sharing in the bounty of American medical technology, 
African Americans are often bereft of high technology care, even for life-threatening conditions such as heart disease. The much-bewailed racial health gap is not a gap, but a chasm wider and deeper than a mass grave. This gulf has riven our nation so dramatically that it appears as if we were considering the health profiles of people in two different countries, a medical apartheid. Researchers have proffered a cornucopia of theories for this medical divide, many of which focus upon putative biological dimorphisms, especially genetic differences. But in dissecting this shameful medical apartheid, an important cause is usually neglected, the history of ethically flawed medical experimentation with African Americans. Such research has played a pivotal role in forging the fear of medicine that helps perpetuate our nation's racial health gulf. Historically, African Americans have been subjected to exploitative, abusive, involuntary experimentation at a rate far higher than other ethnic groups. Thus, although the heightened African American wariness of medical research and institutions reflects a situational hypervigilance, it is neither a baseless fear of harm nor a fear of imaginary harms. A paranoid label is often affixed to blacks who are wary of participating in medical research. However, not only is paranoid a misnomer, but it is also symbolic of a dangerous misunderstanding. That is why I refer to African-American fears of medical professionals and institutions as iatrophobia, coined from the Greek words iatros, healer, and phobia, fear. Black iatrophobia is the fear of medicine. Even those who investigate the role of medical ethics and medical policy are trying to dissect and analyze the most decried African-American aversion to medical research without understanding the history that created that aversion. The historical cause of the racial health gap has been only crudely and cursorily examined and is usually reduced to knee-jerk responses to the Tuskegee syphilis study, as if this were the only instance of problematic medical experimentation. But scores of historical events connected with medical research have plagued black Americans and affected their health-seeking behavior. This historical silence is a grave omission, because trying to ameliorate African American health without understanding the pertinent history of medical care is like trying to treat a patient without eliciting a thorough medical history, a hazardous and probably futile approach. Kill the Messenger In fact, some otherwise well-meaning people wish to censor any analysis of troubled research with African Americans, as I discovered firsthand, to my great surprise. I was elated when a professor at a U.S. medical school summoned me to her office, explaining that she wanted to hear all about the book I was writing. Ensconced in a chair, I eagerly began to describe my work, only to be cut off before I had completed the first sentence. Bolting upright in her chair, she vehemently informed me that the topic of this book was taboo. It's a terrible thing that you are doing. You are going to make African Americans afraid of medical research and physicians. You cannot write this book.
as she glared at me. Her face became contorted with anger, suffused with blood, and her breathing grew rapid. For a moment, I was stunned into silence, because nothing had prepared me for her reaction. After all, freedom of speech and academic freedom are sacred in this country. I was also a bit surprised that a white academic, whose discussions and syllabus had evinced no interest or expertise in the matter, should lecture me, an experienced African-American medical writer, about health communication with African-Americans. She proceeded to inform me that there had been no medical research utilizing African-Americans before the Tuskegee syphilis study, certainly not in the antebellum past. And when I asked her how she knew this, she countered, Can you prove that there was? When I responded simply, Yes, she disgorged a clumsy inquisition, unleashing a barrage of questions that showed she knew nothing about the subject at hand. I responded that my work was well-researched and that she had raised an interesting question. Was it indeed my work that would make African Americans wary of health care and medical research? Or had the work of those whose abuses I proposed to chronicle already achieved this? The answer was all too obvious. I knew from years as a medical social worker, a medical journalist, and a researcher that black Americans did not need me or anyone else to inculcate a fear of medicine. Medical history and practices had long since done so. Medical apartheid is my attempt to document, at long last and as fully as possible, how and why this has happened context of white supremacy audio segment number one uh, and just for full context we really have not even started the book all of that is under the heading of the introduction just her laying out the why she's doing this project the structure of the book what led to this interest uh we will be starting the second audio segment with the official beginning of the book part one a troubling tradition, but that is just the introduction to medical apartheid. Uh, I, it has been a while since I have been uh, this pleased, this eager uh, to be doing a book for the book study session, and hopefully we'll have uh, great participation uh, the whole way through. I think lots of very, very important information. Uh, again, I in, insist uh, any black person that's serious about getting a full understanding of racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, this should definitely be a book that you read uh, and take great notes. Proceeding, if folks have comments, questions that they would like to share, the number to dial <clears throat> and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. If you do not have a phone and you still want to chime in, you can use the free Vope line. It uh, works anywhere in the world. Uh, it is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one 
address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, uh, click the link on the left of the page. It says uh, free vote line. Uh, When you click that link, it will open a small window on your screen. The top line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. The code again is 564 Nine, four, three. The final line, it will ask for a name. You can do whatever you like. Uh, real name, nickname, you can press random keys. Uh, once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. Uh, it is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, you will hear an audio prompt. Uh, to press the number one, do that. I'll see your hand on the screen, and we will get you on the line. Uh, all the folks who have commentary that they would like to share, uh, I will just go to your lines. Uh, let's see. We should have uh, Thomas in New York, uh, the caller at 9325. Uh, Roz, I'll nab uh, other hands as I see them. Uh, feel free to chime in. I'll be real quick. Um, man, um I send a shout out to Simietta Lax, man. This is like I can see that the layers are about to get peeled back, and uh, all I kept hearing as I kept just mm-mm-mm, like the, just the reading went on. The, the part about the cats, I mean, you know, it's easier to catch the biggest cats, you know, and they're better experiment. It's just so many of them, you know, oh, man. And then I just keep thinking of last night's show. You know, all we need is some love. You know, that's the problem. No. Um, lab animals, that's um, pretty much the way they've been using us within the medical field. And um, the the black physician told her that um, it, it was something like, you know, black people don't get, you know, get organs. They donate them, you know. And I, I'm a strong advocate for not being an organ donor, even though it doesn't seem to matter because, you know, they, they take it out and stuff it with the newspaper, as you see. But, um, you know, just very interesting. And um, just to give, um, you know, some more, I would love to, if, if the amount of black doctors, if, let's just say from last night, 5 to 25% of them was to write books that, um, you know, really peeled into the racism inside the medical field that they do, that would be great. But um, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, um, I've been kind of in and out because I'm here with my in-laws right now while my wife is on the way to pick up my son. So um, hopefully it'll be uh, quiet in the background. But, yes, I agree with everything uh, Thomas just said. It looks like the, the layers are definitely about to peel back. There were quite a bit of uh, standout sections, but I'll just try and uh, outline a few of those so I don't take too long. Um, the first one's on page six where it says, these subjects were given experimental vaccines known to have an acceptably un- unacceptably high lethality. 
um, were enrolled in experiments without their consent or knowledge, were subjected to surreptitious surgical and medical procedures while unconscious, injected with toxic substances, deliberately monitored rather than treated for deadly ailments, excluded from life-saving treatments, or secretly farmed for sera or tissues that were used to perfect technologies such as infectious disease tests. A few African-American medical institutions have suffered their own run-ins with federal oversight agencies concerned about how they treated their own research subjects. That section right there really details to me how modern-day torture techniques started, and it started with medical experimentation on people of African descent, the um, non-use of uh, anesthesia, especially during the um, the development of gynecological research, which is just, just horrible to even uh, think about, but ultimately it gives you quite a bit of insight into the psychopathology of white people. A book like this is really the reason why I've added the 10th area of healthcare um, to Neely Fuller's um, nine areas of people activity, because I feel that the nine areas are fine, but none of them really focus on healthcare. And I believe that because it is one of the most important areas of people activity, as far as um, a, an organism, the human organism's ability, ability to survive in a healthy and holistic manner, I felt that it was definitely something that um, should have been added to it. Um, also, the following page uh, has a brief paragraph where it says, research is an utterly essential and desirable component of treatment, but its subjects must be aware that they are participating, must be informed, must consent, and must be allowed to weigh the possible risks and benefits. This book will show that these conditions are only haphazardly met or not at all when the subjects are African Americans. That just details, of course, that black life is expendable and that we're worth less um, in the system of white supremacy. Also, to point out the area that uh, Thomas brought up about them use, using cats, <clears throat> because they said um, it was cheaper to use niggas than cats because they're everywhere and cheap experimental animals. That says it all. They see us as animals. They never will see us as anything less than that. And essentially, um, you know, the, the white people are just they're savage. And I think this, this particular book is really going to bring out the savagery of what it means to be white. Um, on page 10, there's a section that says, but as social attitudes changed, so did physicians' reticence, and most became more circumspect. However, as late as 1995, radiation scientist uh, Clarence Lushbow, MD, explained that he and his partner, Eugene uh, Sanger, MD, chose slum patients as radiation subjects because these persons don't have any money, and they're black, and they're poorly washed. This book will document numerous instances of such shocking frankness on the part of white researchers and physicians when they thought that nobody outside their peer group was listening. What does Dr. Wilson always implore us to ask white people? What do white people talk about when there are no blacks around? This basically lets you know they talk about abusing and killing black people with reckless abandon. And in the medical field, that was something that seemed to be just a daily operation as far as how they are, they, they behave. Um, it's also this book so far, just an introduction, also details the fact that all non-white people are getting abused by the medical industry in a system of white supremacy. But like you've always said, the darker your skin color, the, the worst treatment you're going to get and the more subhuman you're going to be viewed in the system of white supremacy is absolutely right. And the last section I wanted to touch on was on page 14. It says, another file um, also described the plight of an older man in kidney failure, but it looked different. Thinner. 
The first page I read documented his odyssey into sickness as his kidneys failed. It noted, among other things, that he was retired, insured, and Negro. Clearly, every page recorded his race, and someone had underlined it on his social profile just above the line that indicated that medical staff's plans for him were not to secure a transplant, but to help him prepare for his imminent demise. It was signed by a kind, erudite, erudite physician I knew and admired who had actively encouraged my interest in medicine. I could not reconcile this signature with the man I knew, a sensitive scholar and devout Christian. Probably, I thought, I was jumping to conclusions and the patient's race had nothing to do with his failure to be considered for a life-saving organ. This even says, as deep as her understanding was beginning to get or was getting in her research, we were, she was still fighting with the truth about what white people are and what it means to be white. Um, and I think that that's something we all suffer from, that even when it's in our faith, it's like because black people historically have always had limits beyond um, we would not cross when it comes to um, dealing with other people and, and, and just harming other people. The only people that I've seen evidence that black people have not uh, placed a barrier on their ability to be destructive towards is ourselves. When it comes to dealing with other people, I believe that we um, cannot fathom that they're human beings or people who we think are human beings who function on such a savage base level. And I think that that just shows that even with her research as, as deeply knowledgeable as she was, she was fighting that within herself and kind of reminded me of Le Leonida McLean. Um, I just wanted to say thanks for taking my call and I'll mute my line there. Yes, Fabio. Yes, sir, Mr. Demi Ford, go ahead. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to Roz and Thomas on the other lines. Uh, the first thing that jumped out to me about the book was when she, the way she opened it up, you know, talking about the statues and monuments that was erected in honor of Dr. Sims, Marion Sims, which in reality he was, you know, this butcher or madman. But <clears throat> when she tried to get the portrait of him with the uh, black woman in his office, you know, so she could use it for the cover of the book, the difficulty that she was having. It's, you know, a cover-up so that, you know, they create these atrocities and then manipulate the recording of the history of them. And it's even difficult to view that picture if you just go online. But I think I saw an image when I watched it on uh, YouTube. She showed it. And it's it's not really near, you know, what would actually happen with Dr. Sims in an office with a slave. You know, first, first thing they would do is pull a blouse down so that their chest was exposed so that the pictures was inaccurate like she said but just the deliberate attempt to protect the reputation of dr sims is you know that's as bad as uh some of the uh atrocities that he committed and then uh, martin luther king was ahead of his time when he noticed that uh injustice in the in the health industry and said it was the most shocking and most inhumane. You know, today, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, cancer, strokes, 
African Americans suffer the highest rates of cancer and cancer deaths. So if we were making any progress, why isn't any of these statistics changed? Why is it still the same? It's a it's a recording. It's just going and over and over. Research uh, I think the key word is informed uh, informed consent, uh, you know, which is really, uh, it's beyond criminal. I remember um, James Jones' book, Bad Blood, and then the, the book on the prisoner that was being experimented on and how they would put these patches on your back and then they could tell who had been in the experiments because of the different colors. Their backs looked like checkerboards. And <clears throat> although there were some white participants, most of them were black participants because they, they were the ones with the least money and uh, uh, had more to gain from participating in some research like this. Um, it's something, a sentence here that I'd like to uh, dissect and wondering if I am interpreting it correctly when she said that on page 11, in the course of explaining what constitutes exploitive experimentation, Medical apartheid will explain the meaning and nature of informed consent and the difference between therapeutical and non-therapeutical resort. It traces the delicate balance between experimental risks and benefits because symbolists, symbolists, not complete freedom from harm is a therapeutical goal, a goal that often eludes effort. Americans. <clears throat> so, um, the symbiosis, a mutual beneficial relationship between different people or groups, I would state that whites' uh, relationships with blacks and all non whites are relationships or any in interactions have been explorative and not symbols as a therapeutic goal. So uh, you would think that there were agencies, you know, in place that would regulate some of this disparities, you know, but I guess later on she'll get into things like the IRB, some investigative review board, or like she mentioned, the OPRRR, Office of Protection from Research Risk. But you have to think, who's on those boards and who are making the decisions on whether or not this is uh, therapeutical or not. And I did not know about of the 1998 uh, research that they did with the New York City boys where they gave them that drug, Fin Fin, 
I remember that, and it killed a few people, and I think it caused uh, heart problems. But they knew that drug was dangerous. They were giving it to those young boys. Uh, and then last, the white prote- uh, professor of uh, U.S. Medical uh, Center, I guess, t- telling her that she shouldn't write the book. You know, a white professor telling her she shouldn't write something as important as getting this information out. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, Gus. Right on. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had a hand up, uh, feel free. If you're listening and you do not have a hand up, please do not uh, lollygag and wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get your hand up now if you think you have some comments or a question on what we heard thus far from the text. Uh, folks we have not heard from, did you have commentary? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, good evening, everybody. This is Devin in Miami. Um I was actually uh, just wanted to bring up something interesting. Uh, me and my wife were actually uh, starting to listen to the uh, book as we do on our evening walk uh, to the neighborhood. And um, we stopped at the uh, House of Wings, which is like a, it's a black-owned restaurant. And as we're listening to the book inside there, um, a guy is inside. He's selling um, pictures. You know, he's from Africa, from Senegal. So we started talking to him about the book that we were listening to and, you know, basically what it was about and everything. And he was extremely shocked to hear um, experimentation um, on black people as far as uh, medicine was concerned. So I just wanted to um, to mention that uh, how much uh, people in Africa don't even realize um, we're actually being experimented on as far as medicine is concerned. I think she said explicitly that uh, that area of the world in terms of exploiting and probably butchering uh, dark people on the continent, uh, that, in fact, is not decreasing, but increasing, and, in fact, is the scope uh, of what's being done in that area of the world is so large that she couldn't even address it in this book. So that is... Another time, another conversation, another book, um, but definitely significant as well. Um, anybody else we have not heard from? Other folks have comments they wanted to get in? Can I be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. Yes, it, it appears that the uh, writer is laying laying down a uh, excellent foundation for uh, for uh, the research that we are in part imparting on uh, to learn more about on how of the long history of non-white black people being uh, utilized as uh, exper- experimental uh, objects. Our, once again, our black bodies are being utilized as experimental objects. Uh, Right up there, next to the uh, the rat, the the monkey, the uh, gerbils, uh, and in in a lot of cases, in in a bar behind bars, just like those animals. Except for the animals now are getting rights, to whereas they're they're being taken out. I don't think you can you can put as many monkeys, let, uh, experiment on them like 
like uh, they used to. But uh, I think we're still, and I've just heard uh, that we are still uh, uh, being utilized more and more. You know, it's competitive. I mean, where I look at it, as far as uh, uh, physicians or medical studies, you know, somebody wanted, you know, a lot of those guys, males and females want to be, I want to be the first to be able to find this out. And uh, under a system of racist white supremacy, uh, we are the the item that uh, there's not going to be that much pushback, even if they, even if uh, more than those of us who are uh, being uh, spending our time on a Friday evening uh, reading this book, uh, if more if more do that, it still wouldn't be that, that big of a deal to the racist white supremacists as far as that concerns for the research. Uh, I've had some uh, experiences myself uh, as a firefighter uh, over time uh, where I suspected that uh, there was uh, – lesser treatment done on non-white black patients than they were on white patients, uh, right with coworkers, uh, as far as that's concerned. So, uh, I know it blends right in with, uh, this book. Uh, I used to be a fan when I was, uh, younger, uh, of, uh, the so-called horror movies, uh, uh, that was done in like 30s and the 40s, you know, and one of them was uh, Frankenstein, and where he went and and uh, and uh, got parts of dead bodies. But uh, uh, it's 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 not funny uh, when they make movies like this because actually they're they are actually white people. I mean, are actually uh, are are illustrating their own real history, except for except for they wasn't they wasn't going to get dead bodies, dead body part. They get they get live people, live bodies, and 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 doing all kinds of experiments with them. Uh, some instances they would uh, they've shown in history where they wouldn't mind. Uh, putting a few out exposed, you know, so-called Nazis and whatnot and what they were doing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they were doing it all over uh, the earth, including here. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, studying with everybody else uh, on this issue and learning more about it. It also probably gives a, a case uh, that uh, health would be a uh, tenth people activity. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I, I can also go along with Mr. Fuller, is that the results of the the uh, original nine, if you, if with, with that being so horrendous, it automatically goes into you don't have good health uh, with the other nine uh, people activities uh, being uh, in the bad shape that, that it is with us. And uh, I'll uh, mute my line. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, give a few thoughts, uh, and then if anybody else uh, has anything they want to get in, uh, we have about uh, 20 minutes before we get to the second uh, audio segment. Uh, I thought she had a great quote uh, from Richard Wright. think that would be a cowbell, unfortunately, but tremendous author, uh, black boy, uh, native son. Uh, his quote where he says, um, he was talking about studying 
uh, doctors and physicians and the work that they were doing and uh, said that he had the feeling uh, that I could never quite get used to, that I was looking at the world of another race. Uh, extremely uh, powerful quote uh, in terms of just understanding the science of racism, white supremacy that he was viewing. Uh, I know she is going to give more details uh, about Dr. Sims, but I thought that was a great starting point as well. Uh, and just to put in, I, I routinely bring uh, J. Marion Sims' name up, uh, particularly over the last year or so, as they've been talking about the Confederate flag in South Carolina. This J. Marion Sims would also be one of the ancestors, the lineage uh, to Dylan Storm Roof, uh, and terrorism against the black people in South Carolina, and they had all that hoopla about the Confederate flag, uh, I, hey, you have got so many monuments and statues and symbols of white terrorism and flagrant disregard of black life. What is it to take down this flag? You're not taking down any of the monuments to J. Marion Sims or any of the other white terrorists, Ben Tillman, anybody else that you'd like to name uh, in South Carolina. I've tried to point out uh, his name consistently uh, in all of this, you know, brouhaha over the last year or so. Um, some of the other things that I thought were pretty important uh, as she started the book off, I thought it was extremely significant in terms of her talking about secrecy uh, when she gave the definition and, and really emphasizing that a lot of this material documenting uh, centuries of direct abuse and butchering of black bodies. It's there, but do you get access to this information? Uh, the portrait that they would not allow her to include in the book, uh, these medical studies and what have you, this is something when uh, we've had authors on the program or guests on the program, white people, do you get access to some of this information that they have stored in their vaults uh, archives at various uh, libraries and depositories, uh, not to mention the legacy, I think as she pointed out in the book of black people, it being uh, a penalty where you could be killed if you could read as a black person not that long ago in this area of the world, but a long legacy of keeping black people poorly informed, poorly educated, so they just don't have the full scope, the full depth uh, of the war that's being waged against black people, all areas of people activity. Uh, when she talked about the life expectancy numbers, I think uh, many people saw the report that came out this week where uh, whites whined and cried about, oh my gosh, the life expectancy for white women is dropping and I can't believe this and what is going on. Uh, and there were a few ports, uh, reports that did point out within all of this hand-wringing that white women still have a far greater life expectancy than black people. And I think they cited black males that uh, white women still live on average a decade longer than black males as a result of racism, white supremacy uh, that, you know, hey, it's no comparison to what is being done to black folks, this area of the world, worldwide. Um, continuing, uh, just the, the incredible amount of comprehensive information to showing how widespread the impact of racism, white supremacy is, not just life expectancy, but uh, the different diseases uh, that black people are more likely to get, uh, less likely to get quality care, uh, just hugely important. I think she's also going to give more detail about that uh, as we continue uh, in the book and included in that, as I've been saying this year, black mental health, where she says mental ailments are destroying blacks as well. Black women suffer the highest rates of stress and major depression in the nation and suicide rates soared 200 percent among young black men within just 20 
years. Uh, when Dr. Welsing says that black people do not qualify for mental health under this system, excellent reference point right there. Uh, continuing, uh, I think Mr. Demi Four, great point uh, about how this uh, you're supposed to have institutions that cover this. I think that was also a great co- uh, quotation right after the Richard Wright quotation where she had some of the uh, commentary from the Nuremberg trials where, oh my gosh, the Nazis have done this and we got to have safeguards, we got to have protections except for the Negras. Nobody cares. Nobody is there to make sure that Negras uh, are being treated, valued, uh, not being abused, tortured, butchered under the guise of science. Who cares? Just another nigger. Um, continuing, uh, let's see. we? if I could take a moment, I don't, you know, do this very uh, frequently because there really is nothing to uh, be pleased about in the system of racism, white supremacy. But uh, when she talks about there are a number of uh, fine texts that detail many different aspects of medical terrorism against black people. And even though she cites that they do not really do a great job of, as Dr. Welsing would say, connecting the dots and showing this as a larger uh, historical pattern uh, of really predictable medical terrorism against the black people. When she started rattling off these titles, woo-wee, cows hit list. Let's see, James Joan, uh, Bad Blood, the Tuske- uh, Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. He was here in 2012. Uh, continuing, uh, Mr. Hornblum, uh, where he did uh, Alan Hornblum, uh, Acres of Skin, as well as Sentenced to science. Uh, he was here in 2014. He also brought one of the black males that was subjected to some of these uh, experience uh, experiments. Excuse me. We discussed his work and he went into detail about the significance of uh, consent and that black people who were in greater confinement, why they cannot give informed consent and why this work should not be done. Dorothy Roberts killing the black body, not once, not twice, but three-time guest on the context of white supremacy. We discussed the book that was referenced in this book, Killing the Black Body, outstanding body of research. In fact, she was one of the first uh, guests that we had on the program, I think, within our first 50 broadcasts or what have you. She was here, as well as her third book, Fatal Invention, uh, which is also focused on racism uh, within the healthcare industry and some of the same issues uh, that are brought up in this book. But I'm a huge fan of her work. Continuing Clarence Lusane, Hitler's Black Victims on the program and also one of the first uh, in the first group of uh, guests that we had on the program. He was with us uh, back in 2010. Outstanding work. Uh, We discussed two of the books uh, that he did. But we have been here for a while and done quite a bit of research uh, in this area, in addition to some of the texts that weren't even mentioned. Uh, Rebecca Sklut's book on Henrietta Lacks, which was published after uh, this text came out, uh, and some of the other texts uh, as well. But we have done quite a bit of work uh, in this particular area. Uh, continuing, uh, let's see. When she talked about uh, the cats, y'all already brought that out. Very important. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Hidden already brought that out. Great point. Um, let's see. Uh, when she taught, I thought it was significant. I think Roz brought up the point about how all of us really are part of our victimization, a part of our not qualifying for mental health when the evidence uh, and even I thought it was great because she had it hidden in plain sight. Mr. Fuller says that all the time in racial matters, many look 
but few see, see what? See what we're looking at. When you have the proof right in front of you and still have a very difficult time just being honest with ourselves about what it means to be white, the system of racism, white supremacy. I thought she had several paragraphs uh, throughout the text that we got. And I mean, just to emphasize, this is a monumentally important book. We are all victims of, of racism, white supremacy. She is astronomically more informed uh, on this subject matter than I am. I'm not, I don't have a critique at all. I'm just pointing it out because I thought it was significant. And if anybody listening, if you uh, disagree, make sure you speak up loud. But I thought there were, there were several uh, points that kind of showed this, where this kind of difficulty to accept what it is to be white and that, yeah, they are waging war against us, have been for centuries. That's just what it is. And it continues, as the title says, on into the present, where she says, uh, because the ex, when she's talking about when she used to have this passion, I guess, for looking at uh, some of these old medical uh, writings about experiments that uh, race soldiers were conducting uh, on the continent against black people, Asians, non-white people uh, centuries ago, where she says, because the ex- exploits were distant in time as well as geography, I was less critical than I should have been when they sneered at the ignorant customs of superstitious natives. It all happened so long ago, I thought surely those colonial attitudes, white supremacist attitudes, were dead now. I even made excuses for doctors whose disdainful observations were sprinkled with ethnic slurs or when they congratulated themselves for conducting dramatic, not always benign experiments upon the unwitting. I excused them on the basis that all this had taken place in the unenlightened past. How could we judge them for abuses conducted under the aegis of yesterday's morals? As the years passed, this became a per aggressively unsatisfying rationalization and I eventually abandoned my medical adventures. Uh, I thought that was one. Uh, And as I said, I thought there were uh, several more uh, when she, I think you all already referenced the passage where she found documentation. uh, Some of these black patients were suffering from kidney ailments and what have you. And it turns out that one of the white doctors seems like another race soldier who was involved in this patient's care and, and not giving adequate care, not treating him the same way he would have if this had been a white patient. And she struggled to reconcile like, wow, this is a cool white man. He's a Christian. I'm jumping to conclusions. It can't be that he's doing this because this guy, she didn't say a black person, Negro. It can't be because this was a Negro. (laughs) No, it can't be that this guy was racist. And again, this is not Harriet Washington. This is all of us. As Ross said, this is a product of racism, white supremacy, where we just struggle to accept. Yes. Even the quote unquote, well-meaning good whites. Yes. They're racist. Uh, And just further, why no such thing exists. We shouldn't even be saying that well-meaning white person. uh, It, (laughs) It is a total fabrication. You have racist, white supremacists, and that's it. Sometimes they have a smile. Sometimes they might give you a piece of cornbread. At the end of the day, they're still racist. Uh, it continues. I thought this was uh, especially significant because this also is a, a pattern that I see. When she said, when she's talking about this long history of uh, warranted, logical, intelligent black suspicion, a leeriness of white racist medical practitioners where she says for their part the black patient black patients i met and interviewed shared their own medical lore which warned against trusting western white medical practices and physicians a matrix they characterized as racist rapacious and eager to exploit black bodies for medical gain at the cost of health thus the disparate narratives african americans and physicians tell unveil a state of undeclared war or at best an uneasy truce between physicians and their black patients Again, the use of that term war, making it seem like 
there again, the Hatfields and McCoys, as though black patients and the white medical industry, as though we are engaged in some sort of battle, when clearly that is not the case at all. I insist when we're talking about racism, we're talking about white power, the white medical establishment. Clearly, this is a multi-billion dollar global conglomerate, just one arm of the army of racism, white supremacy. This is not a war that we're engaged in. They are engaged in war against black people. And it seems black people have some understanding. Some of us have some understanding that this is happening, not as in-depth as we should. That does not mean we're engaged in some sort of mutual combat. It just means that we are being slaughtered butchered and have some idea that something nefarious is happening but not quite a total grasp and certainly have not gained the ability to completely overcome and overthrow that at this point uh you the last points i will get in I already mentioned about how she doesn't cover what's happening uh beyond the united states in this book and it is not uh decreasing it is blossoming uh let's see the last paragraph i guess that'll be the last point that i get in um when she says, or I'll get into because it's, it's connected. When she says, in fact, some other well-meaning, there it is again. When she says, in fact, some otherwise well-meaning people, I suspect she means white folks, wish to censor any analysis of troubled research with African-Americans, as I discovered firsthand to my great surprise. I say all the time we should not be surprised when racists practice Racism, and this is consistent in my view. It is not out of the the retarded excuse that this race soldier gives her that this is just going to increase Negro mistrust of uh, healthcare practitioners. This is we do not want you publishing our crimes, the war that we're waging against black people. You're not supposed to be doing that. This is the same logic that any other criminal employs. You're not supposed to be talking about the, our, our dirt, our activity. Uh, hush up with all that. Uh, but again, just not really. Grab Grasping that whites, all of them, even the nice, seemingly well-meaning ones that they are all in on it, they understand racism, white supremacy, and they all work to support that, even if it's uh, something I, I can't minimize it. Just the effort to get you to not publish, talk about, reveal truth about what's happening, that is a gargantuan act of racism, white supremacy that I would say practically every single white person on the planet is engaged in in some way or the other. But that last pair or the last portion of it, uh, she's talking to this, I guess, other uh, white uh, healthcare professional, and she says, uh, it's a terrible thing that you're doing. You're going to make African-Americans afraid of medical research and uh, physicians. You cannot write this book. As she glared at me, her face became contorted with anger, suffused with blood, and her breathing grew rapid for a moment. I wish she had given the, uh, this person's name. Uh, for a moment, I was stunned into silence because nothing had prepared me for her reaction. Uh, after all, freedom of speech and ac- academic freedom are sacred in this country. I was also a bit surprised that a white academic... Uh, whose discussions and syllabus had evidenced no interest or expertise in the matter should lecture me, an experienced African-American medical writer, about health communications with African-Americans. All of that just sounds like standard operating procedure for a white supremacist. I am an expert even when I have never opened a book, never read a sentence, never taken time to search anything about the subject matter, I am an expert, Negro. Uh, You cannot tell me anything, and whatever you're talking about is some pseudoscientific BS, and you should hush it up 
right now. Uh, and the everything that she describes there is textbook. In fact, it even reminded me somewhat of our guest on the program yesterday for folks uh, who heard when we had Justine Turner, who, you know, says, hey, I have a black parent and a, and, a, and a white parent. And I said to me, she's just on the racist suspect list, getting upset, getting angry, getting emotional about questions being asked uh, pertaining to certain subject matter that they do not want to address and claiming to have expertise on a subject matter where clearly they do not at all and are even giving out false information. I've seen that time and time again from racist white supremacists. Uh, I will stop there. There are probably many, 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 many other things, but I'll just stop there because uh, just to check to see if anybody else had folks, they commentary they wanted to get in. Uh, the person that called in from a block number, uh, did you have any uh, comments you wanted to share? Person that dialed in from a blocked number. Uh, good evening, everyone. Is um, can you hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well. Wow. Okay. So, you know, where to start? <laughs> where where to start? Um, you know, I, I you know, you said that that uh, white women live ten years longer than black men. I, I think you you kind of underestimating underestimating that, 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 that divide because you know you look at uh, what's that woman's name the woman owes us the, the Queen of England and Prince Philip or whatever it is they're 100 and one of them's 102 and Ronald Reagan was 90 years old all of those rich white people they, they, they live close to 100 years they almost all of them do but if you are black like you said, you will not live as long. If you are male, you will not live as long. But I think if you are black and you have money, like Michael Jackson and Prince, they're not going to let you see 60. Or Whitney Houston, you're just not going to even see 60. You're going to see a 40-year divide. So I think we underestimate the difference because I mean, it's, just, it's, just, it's just huge. And also, I, I think I said it before, you know, they should, they would, um, Dorothy was talking about informed consent, informed consent, you know, how can black people be informed? But um, I've always said that a lot of our mistreatment, and I know it doesn't make any sense, there's some element of consent involved. Even if they get a family member or even if the consent is bogus, I shouldn't say bogus, but um, even if the consent isn't real, there still is some form of consent. Or even if you elect someone to represent you and they get consent to mistreat you, there's always some, there seems to always be some form of consent involved, and, and we don't seem to have the capacity to say no. I mean, we just seem to say yes, no matter what. Yes, 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 we should all practice saying no, because this, this consent thing, it, it really is real. They do seem to need it. They do seem to need it. Um, and in the 70s, in the 70s, when I was, you know, going around hospitals, most of the people who, that's when they were really piloting their uh, taser therapy. They were doing that, you know, by doing all that electroshock therapy. And most of those people were black women. You know, they just did tons and tons of electroshock therapy on black women. They said the black women were depressed. And they just needed to be shocked out of that depression because there was no real earthly reason for it. Um, what else did I notice? Yes, they're using metaphors. Okay. Okay, when they were talking about this 
symbiotic relationship between uh, white doctors and black patients. Maybe they both got a little something out of it, even though it was somewhat therapeutic. No, 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 that wasn't symbiosis. That wasn't symbiosis. I mean, any relationship with a white person and a black person, if you had to put it in that category, you would say it's parasitic. There's not, symbiosis is mutually beneficial, you know, to both organisms, separate organisms, but, you know, they, they are mutually beneficial in living together. But our relationships with white people are mostly parasitic. One organism is harmed and weakened, and the other one is benefited. But even that, I even can't even say it's parasitic because even parasites, they like to keep the host alive, you know, for as long as possible, weakening it little bit by little bit, like a lot of the, uh, like a lot of the tropical diseases, you know, maybe some of the worms and things, just slowly, slowly, you know, debilitating the host, keeping them along as, keeping them alive as long as possible because, you know, they're parasites. But that's not even our relationship with white people. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. The relationship that we have with white people is a cancerous relationship. It is out to consume the host. It is out to consume every aspect of the host, not just the, the local part of the host, but every venue doesn't care if it kills the host. Whereas the parasite, you know, that's not something it really wants to do. It wants to keep eating. So our relationship with white people, I mostly think of as a cancerous relationship out to kill the host, you know, and we can just go ahead and call that war two or whatever, but I really think it's a cancer because we don't seem to understand bring us we just don't see it. We don't we don't we don't see it. You know, I mean even into the bitter end we don't see it. And I, and I dream of an adjuvant, you know, if I could just come up with something that I can give black people when they meet white people so that they will have a heightened immune response and they would realize this is not an organism that is friendly to you. We need to kill this one off real quick. It's dangerous. But I can't think of an adjuvant. I just can't think of one. I just can't think of a way to, 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 to work that immune response so that we know that this is, this is naturally bad for us. But... I guess that's it. I guess all of that was disconnected. But hey, it's, it's, it's going to be a good book. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, question, question. Quick, hang on one second. I just wanted to get in. Uh, it wasn't that I said there was a 10-year gap. It was they reported it was a 10-year gap. So it would be they underestimated, which I suspect is probably true, but those were their statistics. And the sec- just with that consent piece, it's really important because I totally agree. White people do a lot of times violate black people, and they will feign that there was some sort of black person's consent. But just the way that informed consent is officially defined, any sort of malfeasance, anything that you've done where you haven't given full, honest, accurate disclosure, or if you have that person in some sort of position where there is any undue pressure on them, if they decide not to consent, any sort of coercion, any sort, anything about their environment that would impact them being able to give 
an honest, logical consent, yay or nay, that is a violation of informed consent. And I would submit that is always the case for black people under the system of racism, white supremacy. But Alan Hornblum, he really emphasizes that a lot uh, in his book that, yeah, you might have had some black people consenting to these experiments and what have you, but it totally violates what white people themselves have agreed to is this is what's supposed to be informed consent. It is a total violation because these people, black people, they are subjected to totally unjust coercion, manipulation around whatever decision that they're going to make. And again, I just submit that's always the case under the system of white supremacy. Uh, Thomas in New York, are you going to comment? Um, I think you kind of cleared it up. I was just going to ask her, um, ask Palmer, what she what she meant was that black people consent to being mistreated by white people, and therefore we pretty much are uh, asking for it. That's that's what I that's what I took from it, and I guess that's what she said because you kind of alluded to that in what your response was. Yes. Um, but not quite. What I meant is that even though we're not giving real consent, they always have to have something that has the appearance of consent. If you go to jail, try not signing that paper. You know, it's just they have to have that consent. When you get a ticket, you use, they just have to have your consent for everything, even though it's not real consent. I'm not saying, and even if even when they do terrible things to us, they say, well, you know what? That was your elected representative. You voted for that. She voted for that. So it's, it's always this thing that they make it look like we are giving consent, and they always have to go after it. It has to be there. They just can't say, um, they just always have to have that share. They, they have to always have that lie that we're giving consent. Hmm. Right on. Uh, we will stop there. I will submit, I have seen videos of enforcement officers violating black people where you could hear the black person saying, I do not consent to being searched or stopped or what have you. And they just continued with the, I mean, white supremacy. I mean, at the end of the day, they really don't have to ask or even give the appearance. They can just do whatever they want to. I do think there are significant number of examples of that sort of thing happening in uh, all areas of people activity. But nonetheless, we'll, uh, we'll get to the second audio segment. If, folks have other comments, questions, anything was confusing, didn't make sense, or anything just stood out that you didn't get an opportunity to share on the first audio segment, just write it down, make a note, we should have ample time to share uh, for the second audio segment, after the second audio segment. Uh, so we're picking up part one, uh, medical apartheid, Harriet A. Washington, context of white supremacy. Part one, a troubling tradition. Chapter one. Southern Discomfort Medical Exploitation on the Plantation Celia's child, about four months old, died last Saturday the 12th. This is two Negroes and three horses I have lost this year. David Gavin, 1855 Frederick Gardner, a peripatetic Mormon physician, left among his travel memoirs an impression of the 19th century slave markets of Washington, D.C., there are a great number of Negroes, nearly all of whom are slaves, and on different streets are large halls occupied as marts, or stores, for the sale or purchase of slaves. While I have been looking at one of these places on Gravier Street, two gentlemen have arrived, 
one of whom I have seen in the saloon. He is a young planter, and come to purchase a girl to take care of his children, or whatever duties he may think proper to impose upon her. The other person is a doctor whom he has brought with him for the purpose of examining her. They pass along the front of the row in company with the agent or salesman. As they move forward, one is called upon to stand up, then another, while a passive examination is made. Then finally he discovers a bright mulatto, who appears about sixteen years of age and is quite good-looking. She is ushered into a private room where she is stripped to a nude condition, and a careful examination is made of all parts of the body by the doctor and is pronounced by him to be sound. The money is then paid, and she is transferred to her new owner. I have heard that the masters beat and scourge them most cruelly, but I have not seen anything of the kind, nor do I believe that it occurs very often. For the southern people, as a class, are noble-minded, kind-hearted people, as can be found in any country. And moreover, it would be against their own interests to brutally treat their slaves, as no planter desired to have sick negroes on his hands. According to my judgment, so far as my experience extends, I believe that the negroes, as a class, are far more humanely treated and taken care of than are the laboring classes of European countries. Enslavement could not have existed, and certainly could not have persisted, without medical science. However, physicians were also dependent upon slavery, both for economic security and for the enslaved clinical material that fed the American medical research and medical training that bolstered physicians' professional advancement. Gardner's vignette suggests the integral role of medicine in enslavement and repeats a key belief that slave owners and physicians shared an interest in preserving the slave's health, as no planter desired to have sick negroes on his hands. But although medicine was essential to enslavement, the apparent solicitude for the health of slaves was not all it seemed. Rather, the medical interests of the slave were often diametrically opposed to the interests of his owner and of American physicians. From the first, Antagonism reigned between African Americans and their physicians. Between the 17th century advent of African settlers to North America and the end of the 19th century, the slave and the physician shared an unrecognizably primitive medical world. The germ theory that revealed the microbial nature of much disease and led to the first grand waves of disease cures was still well in the future. The existence of pathogens such as bacteria, viruses, and fungi was unsuspected. Almost no effective treatments existed for prevalent diseases until the 18th century. Until the late 1830s, the lack of effective anesthesia made the few common surgical procedures horribly painful and all others impossible. Between the 17th and 19th centuries, medicine in the United States reflected a narrowly limited understanding of disease and a rather cursory training of medical practitioners. Public health institutions were few, feeble, and ephemeral, rising momentarily with epidemics of yellow fever or smallpox, and subsiding from neglect after the crisis resolved. Even the simplest public health measures, hand-washing and antiseptic techniques, clean water, sound, 
pathogen-free housing, an untainted food supply, sewage management, and quantitative disease reporting were all in the future. Because there were only a few effective disease therapies and no antibiotics, epidemics of yellow fever, malaria, tuberculosis, and other infectious diseases frequently raged unchecked. In the early 1700s, this mirrored the situation in England and the rest of Europe. But medicine on the continent began to undergo modernizing changes, although these were very slow to cross the Atlantic. Europe began to embrace public health measures and medical advances, such as widespread vaccination, scientific medical education, and the rise of the hospital. But American progress lagged behind, especially in the insular South. The point of this chapter's unflattering precy of nascent American medicine is not to castigate it for its primitivism, but to put blacks' historical aversion to medical care into context, for most antebellum blacks were subjected to southern medicine. The South was a particularly unhealthy region and was home to 90% of American blacks, the majority of whom were enslaved until 1865. The first blacks arrived in the colonies in 1619, and by 1700 there were only about 20,000 blacks. But as the slave trade flourished, 20,000 more blacks arrived each year. Although 30% of transported slaves died in the nightmare of the Middle Passage, there were 550,000 chattel slaves in the United States by 1776, when blacks constituted 20% of the U.S. population. By 1807, slave importation was legally prohibited throughout the country, and by 1860, the nation's 4 million enslaved blacks had a value equivalent to $4 billion today. In some states, the black population completely comprised slaves. Alabama, for example, forbade the presence of free blacks. The South was the nadir of the American medical experience, visited by a deadly triple confluence, the pathogens of North America, Europe, and Africa. This unholy trinity yielded a bewildering array of unfamiliar infectious diseases, such as hookworm, types of malaria, and yellow fever, incubated by a subtropical climate that was hospitable year-round to pathogens that could not thrive in the colder north. Even familiar European illnesses flared anew in strangely virulent forms, abetted by the hot, marshy climate, poor sanitation, and a public health vacuum. Although the South harbored a highly visible affluent class, the region's relative poverty led to a dearth of medical care and a host of unrecognized nutritional deficiency diseases. So did enslavement. A dramatically misunderstood set of disease etiologies led to the adoption of heroic remedies calculated to kill or cure. Through the 18th century, Western medicine was not only misinformed, but dangerously so. Caustic medicines of the period often contained metabolic poisons such as arsenic or calomel, a compound of mercury and chlorine that was used as a purgative. Many other remedies contained highly toxic substances such as mercury and addictive Schedule II narcotics, 
including the opiates laudanum, opium, and morphine, as well as cocaine derivatives. These medicines addicted, sickened, or killed outright. They could also trigger chemical pneumonitis, or progressive lung injury, if inhaled during a bout of iatrogenic or physician-triggered vomiting. No studies seem to have been done on this point, but such lung injuries may have helped to account for slaves' higher death rate from respiratory disease. Induced vomiting was an everyday event, because the common denominator of medical techniques in this period was the violent release of bodily fluids. Copious bleeding, blistering, and the induction of violent diarrhea were standard therapies. Harsh laxatives, or draughts, such as calomel or jalap, produced copious diarrhea, which leached nutrients, water, and electrolytes from the body. They also invited painful bed sores, which were open to infection unchallenged by antibiotics. These crude therapies were not only unpleasant, but debilitating to ill persons, and even to the strong and healthy. Arsenic, for example, produced not only the intended vomiting and diarrhea, but also a wide range of other problems, including fainting, heart disease, disorders of the nervous system, gangrene, and cancers. Mercury's very serious effects included injury to the nervous system, profound mental deficits, hair and tooth loss, kidney and heart disease, lung injury, and respiratory distress. Mercury crossed the placental barrier and concentrated in breast milk, contributing to the high black infant death and birth defect rates. Such ministrations were often fatal. The 1799 death of George Washington, hastened by a copious bloodletting the debilitated former president could ill afford, is perhaps the best-known example of a patient finished off by the misguided heroics of 18th-century medicine. However, whites of the slave-owning class enjoyed better initial health, better nutrition, and less exposure to environmental pathogens and parasites than did enslaved blacks. Slave owners did not suffer from overwork and exposure, so they were better able than slaves to withstand the rigors of bloodletting. Sensing this, many physicians and scientists discouraged bloodletting for slaves. Thomas Jefferson, statesman and amateur physician-scientist, wrote unequivocally, Never bleed a Negro. But in their everyday practices, physicians didn't listen. Dr. Lunsford Yandell wrote, On March 16, 1833, I was called before sunrise to visit a Negro woman. I took from her twelve ounces of blood. I waited about fifteen minutes when she had a severe convulsion. Such techniques as cupping, the use of heated glass jars to create a partial vacuum that drew blood upward to the skin's surface or through an incision in the skin, and trephination, the therapeutic drilling of holes in the skull, were risky for pampered, well-nourished adults living in relatively healthy environments. But they were fatal attentions for sickly, undernourished, and exhausted slaves and for their children, who were at even higher risk of succumbing to anemia or dehydration. Enslaved African Americans were more vulnerable than whites to respiratory infections, thanks to poorly constructed slave shacks 
that admitted winter cold and summer heat. Slaves' immune systems were unfamiliar with, or naive to, microbes that caused various pneumonias and tuberculosis. Parasitic infections and abysmal nutrition also undermined blacks' immunological rigor. Before antibiotics and sterile technique, surgery was an often fatal affair. Unaware of the connection between bacteria and infection, surgeons operated in their street clothes and with dirty hands in filthy environments, such as the shacks that served as slave hospitals. Even minor incisions or injuries could proceed to life-threatening infections with frightening rapidity. Southern medicine of the 18th and early 19th centuries was harsh, ineffective, and experimental by nature. Physicians' memoirs, medical journals, and planters' records all reveal that enslaved black Americans bore the worst abuses of these crudely empirical practices, which countenanced a hazardous degree of ad hoc experimentation in medications, dosages, and even spontaneous surgical experiments in the daily practice among slaves. Physicians were active participants in the exploitation of African-American bodies. The records reveal that slaves were both medically neglected and abused because they were powerless and legally invisible. The courts were almost completely uninterested in the safety and health rights of the enslaved. The practice of hiring slaves out further endangered enslaved workers by removing much of an employer's incentive to keep the slave healthy and safe. Some humane plantation owners were careful to choose less risky work venues, but a great danger of slave death or disability was inherent in some forms of mining, tobacco production, rice farming, and most plantation work. In these settings, the slave's possible death became part of his owner's commercial calculations. Ominously for blacks, the owners, not the enslaved workers, determined safety and rationed medical care, deciding when and what type of care was to be given. Because professional attention was expensive, most owners dosed their own slaves as long as they could before calling in physicians, who usually saw slaves only in extremis, as a last resort. In clinical notes, medical journals, and memoirs, physicians consistently decried the planter's tendency to rely upon the cheaper ministrations of overseers, slaves, and mistresses in order to save expense. Physicians' records also expressed disgust at the conditions in which enslaved workers were kept. Historian Richard Shryock observed in 1936, Of all critics, the Southern physician was perhaps in the best position to report on the physical and moral treatment of the slaves. When he stated, as he sometimes did, that Negroes were overworked and underfed, he can hardly be suspected of anti-slavery bias, since he was the friend of the planter who employed him. As a matter of fact, he usually approved of the institution. Planter's own records and slave narratives corroborate physicians' complaints that planters provided professional medical care only when they deemed it necessary to save the slave's life, often too late. Owners also restricted access to medical care by routinely accusing sick blacks of malingering, 
Slave narratives and planters' records reveal that an owner faced with a sick slave was likely to believe the illness was feigned. In her excellent and nuanced history, Working Cures, Healing Health and Power on Southern Slave Plantations, Charlotte Fett describes how, in 1859, slave owner William Massey resentfully recorded that his 80-year-old slave, Patty, had just died, of I know not what disease. She has been saying she was sick for near a year and always pretended to be sick. No doctor was ever summoned to investigate, and not even Patty's death seems to have exonerated her from charges of malingering. The enfeebled Patty was no longer valuable in the fields or as a breeder, so the nature of her sickness was inconsequential. Owners relied upon doctors to tell them whether slaves were malingering. But physicians were less than objective. Dr. W. H. Taylor, called in consultation for an enslaved man, prefaced his assessment with the phrase, remembering that simulation was a characteristic of his race. Doctors and owners wrote articles in which they shared medical ruses and techniques calculated to get blacks, healthy or not, back into the fields. Dr. M. L. McLeod even wrote his master's thesis on the fraudulent illnesses of slaves. He shared an incident in which he had accidentally administered an overdose of ammonium carbonate, a corrosive white powder that was often used as smelling salts, to a slave shamming an epileptic fit. The burning sensation shocked her into abandoning her performance, and McLeod, like many other doctors, began to advocate such veiled medical violence when confronted with questionable illness in slaves. But masters also responded to suspected malingering or prolonged illness with frank abuse. Thomas Chaplin wrote in his planter's journal, Mary came out of the sick house today, or rather was whipped out. Owners and physicians also blurred the therapeutic line by referring jocularly to whipping as medicine for malingering slaves. One complaining woman was treated with a cowskin or hickory switch to scourge her, emphasis added. Other doctors recommended that an owner apply nine drops of essence of rawhide or oil of hickory to the back of a sick slave. Yet, slave narratives occasionally speak of the kindness of a sympathetic white physician. In the 1930s, former Texas slave Wes Brady told WPA interviewers how the old white doctor that tended to us helped them to get out of work. He took a little flour and meal and water and made pills. The doctor then told the master that the slave was too sick to work. Sometimes they stayed in bed three or four days taking flour pills. But most physicians shared the economic and political interests of slave owners and conspired with planters, their real clients, to subjugate slaves by invading their bodies. Former slave Martha Griffith Brown recalled that the kindly wife of Dr. Mandley, who sometimes was called in by her master, did not believe in slavery, yet she dared not speak against the peculiar institution of the South. It would injure the doctor's practice, a matter about which she must be careful. The belief in the eternal malingering of slaves was only one tenet of scientific racism a wide body of mostly unflattering beliefs about the bodies and minds of people of African descent. 
These beliefs were presented as research findings, explained by scientific theories, and promulgated by whites who were sympathetic to or were actively profiting from the institution of enslavement. So, not surprisingly, scientific racism provided medical and scientific justifications for slavery. Southern scientists claimed that they alone could analyze blacks with authority. After all, they lived in proximity to blacks, had studied them, and understood their medical and intellectual characteristics. Northern scientists tended not to study African Americans because they were less important to the Northern economy, which was not directly based upon chattel slavery. The care and treatment of slaves was an important aspect of Southern medical regionalism, and the lack of attention to Negro medicine became an increasingly bitter source of contention between Northern and Southern medical schools. As a result, Southerners urged their medical students to eschew the schools of the North. And when tensions mounted on the eve of the Civil War, Southern students of Northern medical schools were holding rallies in which they voted to return South en masse. In Philadelphia alone, 200 Southern medical students withdrew from Jefferson College, and another hundred withdrew from the University of Pennsylvania during a single academic year, 1859 to 1860. Despite their claims of unique expertise, the shoddy research that Southern physicians conducted into black health consisted of an untested nucleus of mythology about the biological nature of blacks. Negative visceral reactions to blacks' appearance, historical writings, racial descriptions from antiquity, natural scientists' endless and largely fictional catalogs of racial traits, and biblical interpretations, all provided a framework for scientific and medical theories about blacks. So did a blame-the-victim approach to the poor health of the enslaved. The scientific racists' emphasis was not upon fact-based theories, logical methodologies, experimental data, control groups, and verification by replication. There were neither checks against accepting assumptions as facts nor any tests for confounding social factors. There certainly was no provision for removing ethnocentric bias. This science was the embodiment of ethnocentric bias. This science also served a critical political purpose, for it provided a biological and ethical rationale for enslavement. Historical documents reveal that African Americans recognized this hazardous medical agenda and resisted when they could. Thus, medical abuse fed iatrophobia, the fear and loathing many black Americans harbor to this day toward the American medical establishment. An exegesis of American medical literature, compiled in the service of scientific racism, is beyond the scope of this book, and has been ably completed elsewhere. However, a description of the most pertinent beliefs will help to illuminate the atmosphere in which blacks were medically abused and in which they learned to be wary of the precepts and practices of American medicine. The science of race has always been an amalgam of logic and culture. The nature of race itself is an important but nebulous and shifting facet of scientific medical thought. 
As early as A.D. 160, the Roman physician Galen, 129 C. 199, described African men as possessing oversized sexual organs and inferior intelligence. But until the 17th century, the changing meaning of race had encompassed only nations and families. Race, in the singular, also denoted all of mankind, as in the race of man. Use of the term race to denote biologically different types of mankind evolved only in the 18th century, when the study of animal breeding gave rise to heightened awareness of animal subspecies and of the possibility of breeding animals to encourage desired traits. Not coincidentally, this period coincided with the growth of the slave trade, when the biological distinctiveness of men became economically important. Those who studied the different groups of men were called ethnologists, and were the forerunners of anthropologists. Ethnologists applied the classification and categorization methods of the natural sciences, called taxonomy, to the study of man. Even after the meaning of race came to include subgroupings of man, it had several meanings. By races, some meant biological subspecies of man, analogous to the different breeds of dogs. For example, Swedish naturalist Carl von Linnea, Carolus Linnaeus, the most famous of the taxonomists, categorized Africans, and by extension U.S. blacks, as homo afer, theorizing that black men had different evolutionary forebears and had evolved along a separate evolutionary track from white men. In 1735, the first edition of his Systema Naturae also designated the subspecies Homo sapiens americanus, for Native Americans, whom he described as ruled by superstition, Homo sapiens asiaticus, for Asians, whom he believed were ruled by ritual, and Homo sapiens europaeus, for whites who were ruled by intelligence. But in Linnaeus's system, Homo sapiens afer was ruled by caprice. This use of the word race in the sense of a biologically distinct subset of Homo sapiens was popularized in 1749 by Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon, a wealthy French intellectual who made important contributions to medicine and natural history. Buffon notably theorized that the resemblance between apes and humans hinted at a common ancestry. For other theorists, race indicated entirely different species of men, with different origins as well as different characteristics for blacks and whites. Those who believed in this theory were the polygenists. Still others believed that whites and blacks shared a common ancestral ape and a single species. These were the monogenists. Most monogenists believed that whites and blacks were originally and inherently equal, but that blacks had suffered from environmental and social pressures that caused them to become inferior. Other monogenists believed that blacks' devolution had imparted permanent inferiority, although they still shared a species designation with whites. Throughout the 17th century and into the early 18th century, the theories of scientific racism were informed by the Bible as well as by science. 
Monogenesis, for example, held that people of every race had originated from the biblical Adam and Eve. Gradually, blacks had taken on divergent characteristics, such as darkened skin, woolly hair, and prognathous features, dictated by their African climate. The idea that blacks' features were dictated by climate was already widespread. Shakespeare's Cleopatra, for example, is described as burnt black by Phoebus's amorous kisses. Monogenists believed that blacks' features were inferior to those of the white man, but they also believed that they were malleable and that blacks could catch up to Caucasians. But in the end, it was scientific beliefs that proved malleable, and by the late 1830s they bent to accommodate the political reality of abolitionism. Black and white abolitionists were turning world and domestic opinion against enslavement as inhumane, unjust, and unchristian, and pro-slavery physician scientists such as Josiah Clark Knott, Samuel George Morton, Louis Agassiz, and George Robbins Glidden, leaders of the American School of Ethnology, went on the defensive. They responded by portraying the enslaved black as inherently debased and immutably so. No amount of training, education, or good treatment could make him the equal of a white man. According to polygenists, blacks were physically inferior and were liars, malingerers, hypersexual, and indolent. In the early years of the 18th century, blacks were most often compared to beasts. Later in the century, comparisons to European children reigned instead. Children who could never grow up, and the slave became Peter Pan in blackface. The supposed lack of adult judgment rendered blacks unable to care for themselves and gave yet another justification for slavery. It is also important to trace the tangled distinctions between racism and racialism. Racists believe in an innate, usually immutable inferiority. But racialist is a confusing label, because it is applied to people holding very different beliefs. The term can denote a person who believes that race or skin color does signal inherent attributes, but that the attributes in question are simply different, neither negative nor inferior. But racialist can also mean a person who interprets the different features and qualities of blacks as superior. The word racialist has recently been used to describe actions taken to redress long-standing racial wrongs, such as affirmative action, to bolster the fortunes of blacks. Then again, racialist can also be a mere synonym for racist, as it long was used in England and has been adopted by racial hatred groups as a euphemism for racism. As a result of this semantic confusion, a once useful term has been rendered worthless by its many contradictory meanings. The awkward and pallid term race-based seems the closest thing we now have to a neutral racial adjective. Whatever their pet theory, the many physical differences between blacks and whites suggested a hierarchy of humanity to scientific racists. Different from whites meant inferior, and inferiority was documented in entire catalogs of black flaws that filled medical journals and textbooks. 
1839, Morton published Crania Americana, a book written to demonstrate how human skull measurements indicated a hierarchy of racial types. Morton determined that Caucasians had the largest skulls, and therefore the largest brains, and blacks the smallest. His tests were the forerunner of phrenology, which sought to determine character and intelligence by interpreting the shape of the skull. By 1848, Louisiana's Samuel A. Cartwright, M.D., had gained renown by publishing a plethora of articles on Negro medicine in Southern medical journals, leading the Medical Association of Louisiana to appoint him chair of its committee to investigate black health and physiology. That same year, Cartwright published his paper, The Diseases and Physical Peculiarities of the Negro Race. Cartwright augmented his scholarly work with a constant onslaught of medically-based pro-slavery letters to newspapers and popular magazines. He supported his widely-read claims of black inferiority with a mixture of biblical lore and scientific theories that was not unusual for his time. Cartwright suggested that blacks' physical and mental defects made it impossible for them to survive without white supervision and care alleging that the cranium of blacks was 10% smaller than that of whites, preventing full development of the brain and causing a stunting of the intellect. French scientist Louis-Pierre Graciolet added that in the Negro, the cranium closes on the brain like a prison. It is no longer a temple divine, to use the expression of Malpighi, but a sort of helmet for resisting heavy blows. Cartwright even asserted that blacks had a very different breathing apparatus and skeletal structure from that of whites. By 1851, Cartwright had also discovered and described a host of imaginary black diseases, whose principal symptoms seemed to be a lack of enthusiasm for slavery. Escape might have seemed normal behavior for a slave in ancient Greece or Rome, but Cartwright medically condemned such behavior in American blacks offering a diagnosis of drapetomania, from the Greek words for flight and insanity. Hebitude was a singular laziness or shiftlessness that caused slaves to mishandle and abuse their owner's property. Diastesia Ethiopica was another black behavioral malady, which was characterized by a desire to destroy the property of white slave owners. Cartwright claimed that it differs from every other species of mental disease as it is accompanied with physical signs or lesions of the body discoverable to the medical observer. Struma africana was a form of tuberculosis that physicians misdiagnosed as a peculiarly African disease. Cachexia africana referred to blacks' supposed propensity for eating non-food substances such as clay, chalk, and dirt. Actually, this disorder, which is called pica today, is not racially specific, and the cravings it inspires were probably related to the rampant malnutrition among slaves. Tellingly, Dr. Cartwright recommended that these ailments be treated with corporal punishment or with internment in work camps. Put the patient to some hard kind of work in the open air and sunshine. The compulsory power of the white man by making the slothful Negro take active exercise, puts into active play the lungs, 
through whose agency the vitalized blood is sent to the brain to give liberty to the mind. We will wrap up there. Uh, almost finished uh, first chapter. Uh, lots more to come. Looking forward to the text. Uh, folks would like to comment on the second audio clip or if there's anything from the first section that you didn't get an opportunity to discuss, uh, the number to dial 641-715-3640. Decode five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who uh, dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, Mr. Dermy Four, Thomas in New York, Roz, caller in Florida, Karma. If I see any other hands, I will nab you as well. Uh, feel free to chime in if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, um, this book is profound, and I mean, we haven't gotten that far into the book already, but I just think she's an incredible writer. I think this would, um, I will put this up there with Urugu, um, as well as uh, um, Neely Fuller's work and Dr. Welsing, as far as getting a very holistic understanding of the system of white supremacy. It's, it's an extremely powerful work. Um, on page 30, she wrote, uh, historian Richard Shryock observed in 19... 19- in 1936, of all critics, the Southern physician was perhaps in the best position to report on the physical and moral treatment of slaves. When he stated, as he sometimes did, that Negroes were overworked and underfed, he can hardly be suspected of anti-slavery bias, since he was the friend of the planter who employed him. As a matter of fact, he usually approved of the institution. Planters' own records and slave narratives corroborate physicians' complaints that planters provided professional medical care only when they deemed it necessary to save the slave's life, often too late. So this really tells you that um, the whole idea of, you know, when a nigger dies on the plantation, we'll just replace him with another nigger, really comes into play simply because, like they said, they will wait till the very last minute to get uh, sick black people the health care that they needed. And then when the the health care was administered, um, it was subpar, to say the least, and highly abusive. So this would facilitate their demise a lot, much quick, a lot quicker. And that was kind of uh, reiterated on the following page where they wrote, but Masters also responded to suspected malingering or prolonged illness with frank abuse. Thomas Chaplin wrote in his planter's journal, Mary came out of the sick house today or was rather whipped out. Owners and physicians also blurred the therapeutic line by referring jocularly to whipping as medicine for malingering slaves. On One complaining woman was treated with a cowskin or hickory switch to scourge her. Emphasis added. Other doctors recommended that an owner apply nine drops of essence of rawhide or oil of hickory to the back of a sick slave. So really, black, black um, medical care was torture. Um, systematic, scientific torture. And um, this book is really bringing this home in a very profound way. Um, the following, the two paragraphs down, it, she, she writes, but most physicians shared the economic and political interest of slave owners and conspired with planters, their real clients, to subjugate slaves by invading their bodies. This uh, speaks to the fact that this is a system. This is not an aberration. This is not an anomaly. This is every single aspect. Like I said previously on the show, um, all 10 areas of people activity are basically the organ system of the 
white superorganism that is racism, white supremacy, and this really shows that there is a system where everyone basically works with each other, working iniquity in secret, and also, like you said, putting it in plain sight where black people cannot see or discern it because we have been uh, so conditioned to see the white man as our benefactor instead of as our terroristic, genocidal uh, enemy, which is what they are. Um, Also, the area where they write about, let me see. Oh, yes, there's a section on page 33 where she writes, the science of race has always been an amalgam of logic and culture. The nature of race itself is is an important but nebulous and shifting facet of scientific medical thought. As early as 160 AD, Roman physician Galen um, described African men as possessing oversized sexual organs and inferior intelligence. But until the 17th century, the changing means of race, meaning of race, excuse me, had encompassed only nations and families. Race in the singular also denoted all of mankind as in the race of man. So this is establishing basically the race, the whole concept of race um, that as we know it today, and this competition to dominate all non-white people that whites have enacted. This shows that at least in this book, it goes, this system of white supremacy go, goes back 2,000 years ago. But actually, when you study African history, and you uh, read that Narmer in uh, Kemet or Egypt uh, had to fight the ruler of northern Egypt to consolidate uh, the, the, the country into one country, northern and southern Egypt. He was fighting outsiders. He was fighting what they call the Hyksos, or uh, shepherd people, which were white people. So we have been fighting with them as far as them infiltrating our societies and gentrifying our societies and raping our people and um, miscegenating our population for at, since at least 4,100 B.C., and probably older than that. That's the oldest documented uh, case as far as um, our history, as far as the incursion of whites into the African continent causing problems. So for us, it's really an interesting uh, thing because white supremacy has been around for a very long time, and it seems like at least our ancestors in Kemet had a more profound understanding of what it meant to be white than we do today because of the types of battles and the wars that were waged by our ancestors to uh, keep whites away from us. Um, I don't want to talk too much longer, but um, the area where they talk about um, monogenous and uh, polygynous really speaks to the fact that um, dealing with the medical system is just like the political system. When we talk about Republicans and Democrats, they're basically two sides of the same racist white supremacist system and coin, and ultimately that uh, no matter which angle these white people have um, come at us as far as their potential quote-unquote medical care for black people, it is always a racist white supremacist experimental uh, damaging approach, which basically wholesale genocides black people in, a, in, the, in the most scientific um, methods I've ever seen. And this book, I mean, like I said, we haven't even gotten that far. And what she's establishing is profound. So like I said, I'll put that up there with um, Yurugu, um, uh, Neely Fuller's work, Dr. Wilson's work, as far as just if you want a holistic understanding of racism, white supremacy, and you want to understand why there should be a tenth area of people activity that we label healthcare. I think this book has established that in, in droves just in this first reading. And I'll mute my line there. Thank you very much. Other folks have commentary? Yes, ma'am, you heard? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, in this reading, I think she uh, made it clear that uh, the medical field was working in conjunction, you know, with 
uh, these uh, planners and so-called uh, uh, white supremacists, you know, in structuring this system because it was necessary to um, objectify and to have blacks in a lower status so that uh, some of this mistreatment, you know, would seem almost justified. It's said that the South was the nadir of the American medical experience, visited by deadly triple confluence, the pathogens of North America, Europe, and Africa. So you had these Europeans coming over with these new diseases and whatever else was common uh, in Africa when we were brought over. And then you add that to uh, what was already here. You know, these the hookworm, malaria, yellow fever. You know, if you just can think for a minute that how a remnant of people or a group of people survived the horrific mistreatment, um, you know, having to work for nothing, hot sun, and then not given medical care until, you know, a lot of times it was too late or when you were in the worst stages. It would, you know, it defies the mind that, you know, we, we were able to survive. But it's just a testament to the uh, perseverance of our people. And then the rest of this about how these whites came up with um, these different names for what they call black people, all that was to justify whatever they were doing or to give some type of reasoning to uh, because, I mean, come on, even if you're a slave owner and you got people working for you, how can it be that you think that he's insane to run away from someplace where you beaten him, uh, not feeding him enough, not giving him medical care, and then to think that it's crazy for him to think about leaving? Uh, to me, that's a form of insanity in itself. But uh, I really like the book. I think that uh, some of the terms that she's using is because if you want your material to get out there, you can't, you have to do it in a way that it sounds acceptable, but you're getting the same thing done, you know, in the end result. So I hope this is bringing to light you know, some of the uh, horrific experiments and the way that we were treated, you know, so it can come home. And we're still treated that way, even now. You know, when I go to the doctor, I'm looking at a doctor that wants to uh, do some shoulder surgery on me. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I don't think it requires that. And then everybody should be able to get a second opinion and, and don't feel bad about ever saying no, because you can tell from the beginning, these doctors, 
even before they started researching, they didn't know what they were doing. You wasn't even required to have any schooling or medical certificates to say you were a doctor. They used horrific things like using leeches and maggots. And I even read somewhere where the FDA is approving the use of leeches in medical care again. So you have to wonder how much uh, you know, how much have we advanced in the medical field? I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, guy. Yes, sir. Other folks uh, that we haven't heard from have commentary? Other people uh, that we have not heard from? Any comments? Are you all just listening in? If you don't have comments, that's fine, too. Just making sure people don't wait till the last minute. We have about 10 minutes left. Kidoko, I will assume they're fine. Uh, some of the quick comments uh, that I wanted to make sure that I got in. Uh, this was actually in the first section, first audio segment. Uh, where she says, and I have the electronic version here, that's why I'm not giving out uh, page numbers, sorry. Uh, but <clears throat> she says scientists who abuse, exploit, and lie. I thought that was a key feature as well, where she talked about how much uh, lying and deception was going on uh, in uh, white laboratories, white scientists. I think we dealt with some of that, and even the lack of uh, hygiene and cleaning procedures. Some of that came up in Rebecca Sklute's Henrietta Lacks, but where she writes, uh, scientists who abuse, exploit, and lie to research subjects get more than their share of ink, but I spent enough time among physicians scientists to believe that most American researchers, white and black, are idealistic and skilled. However, when it comes to the abuse of African Americans, a different set of ethical standards has long prevailed and abusive researchers have historically been closer to the norm than we would like to think. Uh, Even uh, in that portion right there, uh, I felt like it's still giving a little bit of, it's cutting whites a little bit of slack. Um, within the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, I mean, it's, it is total war against black people. And even when it's not as grotesque as experiment and what was happening to these expl- uh, enslaved black females uh, that J. Marion Sims was butchering uh, or some of the Tuskegee syphilis, which we'll get to uh, later on in the text, even in what's happening with Obamacare, where it was well documented that you had whites, uh, some calling themselves Republicans, some not, saying we're so opposed to this nigger in the White House, we're going to totally block his plan, even if that means us turning down millions of dollars for our state because we don't want, quote unquote, Obamacare. And this was happening in many, many areas, many states where you had large numbers of black people who were uninsured, where this would have helped them to some degree. And they said, no, we're not going to do that, so you all are not going to get this help. And this is well documented uh, that this sort of thing was happening. Even if you want to look at some of White's fiction, uh, the much celebrated The Help, I think one of the key uh, portions of that fiction, film and book, Viola Davis's character, when she says that her son died, he got hurt, they took him to the hospital and they said, oh, no, we don't work on niggas here. And they just left him out in the street and died. And this has happened real life over and not something 40, 50, 100 years ago, like recently black people, even in Chicago, when they got the uh, Obama library last year, you had a lot of black people who were saying, we don't need no cotton picking library. We need a hospital. We got black people who are dying here and we can't even get appropriate medical care. So I just, in my opinion, uh, it's 
I just don't think it's accurate to say uh, that you have a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning, idealistic whites in the healthcare field or elsewhere, and that these things just tend to happen. No, this is deliberate targeted warfare against black people, all areas of people activity. Moving forward to the second audio segment, when she starts off with uh, just the horrible practices that were happening to black people in period and talking about how the South, because of weather and poor sanitation, poor hygiene, lack of nutrition, beating, overwork, the just horrible, horrendous health conditions for black people, especially. And she says the point of this chapter is unflattering, uh, precious is of, <clears throat> of nascent American medicine is not to castigate it for its primitivism, but to put blacks historical aversion to medical care into context. For most antebellum blacks were subjected to Southern medicine. The South was a particularly unhealthy region and was home to 90% of American blacks, the majority of whom were enslaved until 1865. I thought that was astronomically important because it is consistent. It's, it's a really stale cliche in saying that black people are strong and we're the strongest people. And what we went through from slavery made us strong. And one of our guests, actually, not once, not twice, four-time guest, Vernelia Randall, uh, who's on the program covering the same subject matter uh, repeatedly. In fact, she talked about Obamacare. She talked about the Scott sisters in Mississippi, uh, which is one of those states that blocked Obamacare. Uh, she also, we talked about her book, Dying While Black, which is this exact subject matter. She talked extensively about Dr. Samuel Cartwright when she was on our broadcast in 2009. But she said, that is an astronomical lie. It's not based in fact at all. It may sound nice. Even I think some black people like saying that to make it seem like we're strong and you know we went through all this and it made us a strong people and she said nothing could be further from the truth there's no way you can go through all this horrendous abuse and rape and beatings and torture and everything else and think that you are going to be a better person a stronger person as a result of that much less to have this happen to you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren have this happen for centuries and think that this somehow has made you has improved your quality here as a human being, that is total nonsense. That is centuries of abuse and victimization uh, that I think that explains to some degree some of the problems that we are experiencing right now because this is ongoing trauma with the system of racism, white supremacy, ongoing abuse. Uh, one of the next things that I thought uh, was extremely important, uh, when she says that black people black people, black Americans bore the worst abuses, uh, these crudely empirical practices which uh, countenanced a hazardous degree of ad hoc experimentation in medicine, dosages, and even spontaneous surgical experiments in the daily practice amongst slaves. That sort of mentality of we have a nigger and anything can happen to niggers under the system of white supremacy, I think that mindset is just, it is a staple. It's, it's a standard ideology of how whites view black people. Anything can happen. We might not even have a plan for what we're going to do to this black person, but just it's a nigger. So anything that comes to mind. Uh, any sort of cruel, barbaric, act. hey, let's do it. And this is, again, all areas of people activity, not just healthcare. This is what it means to be white. Uh, where she goes forward. Oh, man, we've talked about this. And I think some of the books that we've done leading up to this, I think it's great. When we did uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, The American Slave Coast, some of those books that give more extensive detail uh, about the torture slave system in this area of the world. When she's talking about Patty and she says, uh, no doctor was ever summoned 
to investigate and not even Patty's death seemed to have exonerated her from charges of malingering. Uh, the enfeebled Patty was no longer valuable in the fields or as a breeder. So the nature of her sickness was inconsequential. Again, speaking to uh, the American Slave Coast, rape of black people is a fundamental primary aspect of racism, white supremacy, white culture. That is really one of the primary facets of slavery in this area of the world. You see it right there. Sometimes it's, again, right in your face and we're just not processing it in that matter. But, hey, this negress, she can't breed anymore. She's not producing any other black folks that we're going to enslave and torture. <sighs> Whatever. She dies. Oh, well, we just get another one to keep on moving. Uh, where she says... The oversized sexual organs, again, I thought that was a Welsing moment. Dr. Welsing would speak to that. I'm sure she would insist that that is symbolic of the uh, genetic material of melanin-dominant humans and whites recognizing that uh, as an enemy to their white genetically inferior state. I am certain Dr. Welsing would say something much more articulate and in-depth, uh, but huge Welsing moment right there. Uh, Again, we've talked about Samuel Cartwright on this program repeatedly. And in fact, that is not just a relic of outdated, uh, quote unquote, ignorant racist thinking from the 19th century. Uh, Tom Metzger is a white male. He was on Melissa Harris Perry's program almost weekly. Uh, his book, Protest Psychosis, which was published after this book, Medical Apartheid, came out. Uh, he documents that the same thing in the 1960s, when you started to have large numbers of black people making an effort to counter racism, all of a sudden you had this huge explosion of schizophrenia where it's, oh, these niggers have gone crazy. We just need to put them in an institution uh, and give them some sort of shock therapy or drugs or whatever the case may be. But that is the thesis of his book, that you started having black people diagnosed with schizophrenia because of their aversion to being abused and subject to the system of racism, white supremacy. He was a guest on Cree's program 2010. Uh, I would encourage folks to check that book out as well. He was on Melissa Harris Perry show uh, every other week uh, while the program was on air. Um, let's see. Mm -mm. Also thought it was important when she talks about how uh, she says when you started to have people saying that enslaving black people was inhumane and maybe we shouldn't do this, uh, where she says pro-slavery physician scientists such as Josiah Clark Knott, Samuel George Morton, Luis uh, Agassiz and George Robbins Gidden, leaders of the American School of Ethnology, went on the defensive. They responded by portraying the enslaved blacks as inherently debased and immutably so. No amount of training, education, or good treatment could make him or her equal of a white man or white woman. I thought that was hugely important as well because, again, uh, if you're a white person, you're not ignorant about racism, white supremacy, any effort to undermine, neutralize their system. They respond accordingly, all areas of people activity, whatever is needed. If that means that we need to uh, update our ideology, our worldview, the way that we use words to support this system, if that means we need to do something specifically to black people to stop them from doing certain things, to change how we operate the plantation, so be it. But they're not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. They can see when their system is under attack and they get busy to make sure that that uh, does not gain any traction to severely damage their domination over non-white people. Uh, I think... I will pause there. I'll save uh, the rest of my commentary for next week. Uh, anybody else have anything they want to make sure they got? Well, uh, the person that dialed in two six. Oh, people are jumping around. These numbers are coming up a little crazy. Anybody have uh, that we haven't heard from? Have anything they wanted to get in before we wrap things up? Yes, I would like to uh, give some uh, concluding uh, things based on what I heard 
and my thoughts. Uh, yeah, uh, to, uh, in my thoughts, uh, the in the uh, 18th century, uh, medicine overall was was still kind of primitive uh, at that particular point in time. Uh, there was. There, there was at least one president that I read about that had wooden teeth in his mouth. Uh, if, if, it, if it wasn't a president, it was Ben Franklin. I can't remember which one. Uh, and primarily our status, which was far more worse, of course, uh, we were on the level of the of lives of livestock. Although I think horses were treated better than what we were, because at that time it was a Ford before uh, motor vehicles, and uh, the horses what got you wherever you needed to go. So they had to treat the horses, uh, uh, and of course they got better treatment than uh, than than, uh, than us. Uh, the only the only interest of 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 health care with the quote unquote non-white black people, especially during that time, was only for them to. Uh, be able to uh, maximize profit uh, for the system of race and white supremacy, uh, but they—I don't think they worry too much about if if uh, one of us died in that process, uh, because th th at that time they could either have rape a black female and, and produce another one, or the the uh, the picked uh, breeders that were forced on black females. Uh, within that environment, they you know they were forcing us in that type of way also. Uh, yeah, the, like I said, the procedures of medicine was was pretty bad, uh, all in general. But I, I would I would suspect that that after after uh, they changed the strategy from slavery to to uh, uh, Jim Crow and and not Jim Crow but just after uh, the Civil War, the so-called Civil War, uh, that's when I think they started really using us as experimental uh, uh, objects uh, because um, I would suspect mainly from the standpoint of, of maintaining, having better uh, trauma when it comes to uh, uh, war. Because during the Civil War, it was cutting off people's legs and arms without no anesthesia. And uh, so they had to improve upon it because, of course, they wanted to compete with other white people around the world uh, and as far as being on top, uh, uh, as far as white people are concerned. So uh, medically, they had to have better uh, medical procedures. And I'm pretty sure that we were the uh, uh, test tube uh, objects. Uh, for that uh, that research and, uh, and getting gaining a better understanding of how to get get the job done in a more proficient manner, we were the test objects. You know, as I heard uh, several people say, "Oops, okay, well that one, that 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 didn't work, so let's get another nigga." You know, that sort of thing was was being done at the time. Uh, those those are just my thoughts. So I'm looking forward to uh, studying more and more about uh, what uh, the writer has to say in this book. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, Have you heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm having a bad year. Oh, uh, my Lord. How do you say he lost um, three horses and two Negroes? Um, he had a bad year. Um, I, what I want to say is simply 
Um, going back to the Henrietta Lacks book, this problem um, of this lack of experimentation, which is still going on, it would be much worse if they never found the HeLa cells and um, were able to test them instead of us um, on all this medicine and stuff that they've created and copied. So, um, you know, um, I guess we need to think the mother of modern medicine for that because um, we'll be the, the test dummies on every pill and everything they have, but they at least can test those cells now and see the reaction they'll have on people and then see how, if they want to go public or whatever, you know. So um, that's all I wanted to add. Everyone's a comment on point, and I can't wait to start peeling back all these layers. Thank you, Gus. Yes, sir. Make sure I get in a correction for myself. Um, the book, uh, Protest Psychosis, uh, it's not Tom Metzger. It's Jonathan Metzl, and Metzl is M-E-T-Z-L. Jonathan Metzl uh, is his name. Uh, the same sort of theory, racist ideology, as Mr. Cartwright, uh, black people are protesting racism, so they must be crazy. We'll classify them as uh, being schizophrenic. Um, let's see. I think we pretty much did our full three hours. I'm just trying to make sure I didn't have another quick uh, note that I took that I wanted to make sure I got in, but I think I'm pretty much uh, stayed. I, I guess I will I will only add uh, Vernelia Randall, uh, the second time that she was on the program uh, again talking about healthcare and white supremacy she referenced the Scott sisters uh, and there were health uh, conditions uh, afflicting both of them and they were looking at, at the need for some sort of organ transplant and uh, Vernelia Randall she said that she didn't think that they would be suitable for any sort of organ transplant because they had spent this time uh, in greater confinement, which, of course, logically impacts your health, uh, has a uh, corrosive impact uh, on your health. And she said she felt that that was going to be enough to probably make it so that they wouldn't be suitable uh, organ donors. Uh, but just racism, white supremacy erodes deliberately erodes the mental, physical, spiritual health of uh, black people. I'm sure there'll be more of that uh, as we continue with the book. Uh, with that, we'll pick up uh, next week. Uh, there's a lot of material online uh, in reference to this book. You can hear uh, Harriet A. Washington, who's published uh, more than one book since uh, this effort came out. Uh, you can check online to see she's got many, many talks, lectures, and what have you uh, about this text. If you want to get more information, and other people have talked about it, uh, we'll be on this, I think, for at least two months, uh, as I was looking at it. Probably not as long as I originally thought, but certainly we'll be on it for a month or so. Uh, fantastic information, and looking forward to learning more. Uh, we should be here mañana, compensatory call-in. 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we will review news observations from the last uh, seven days. Lots uh, to cover with regards to racism. Uh, if uh, you have you know, problems, workplace racism, whatever you want to get in, you can share tomorrow. You can feel free to drop an email as well. I'll also encourage folks, since we're going to be on this book so long, if you're not able to participate live, which I know many, many people are in that category, feel free to drop an email if it's something that you would like to share. That way we can read it on the program uh, next week. So you can just email untiljustice at gmail.com, and we'll include your commentary as we are moving along uh, with the book. Uh, with that, we will wrap things up. I will again encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of racism white supremacy and you can think of that uh in terms of health counter racism for what we can do to maintain or manage our health as best we can i think that would certainly contribute to us being in a better state uh spiritually mentally emotionally physically with regards to our health 
Uh, I think whites have done a great job putting us uh, in a really toxic and traumatic state and saying, hey, well, if you take these narcotics, you got a little chemicals that we cooked up, got a little poison that we cooked up, this will make you feel a little bit better. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, most often, 10 times out of nine, I would sit and I'm saying it that way specifically, deliberately, uh, they just want us to take these chemicals and poisons to further erode our health state and so that we are not thinking clearly to make the best possible decisions in counter war and how to permanently neutralize whites, racist white supremacists. Certainly, if you're going to be in transportation, driver, passenger, pedestrian even, you do not want to be under the influence. You're just making the job for Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, any other race soldiers. You're making their job way easier. Uh, anytime you get stopped or what have you, you want to be clear thinking so you can make phenomenal decisions to try to keep yourself as safe as possible and anybody else that you might be responsible for. Certainly buckle up if you're in a vehicle. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's, Hello. Uh, I'm really the interrupting. Uh, it's nerve plucking. I have asked people not to interrupt. Uh, did you have something you needed to get in? Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I thought I was on, on the other line. Sorry. Oh, okay. Right on. Right on. With that, uh, Creator, we ask that uh, you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.